BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to One Sweet Dream. This is part four of the Maureen Cleave series. I am your host, Diana Erickson, and I'm again joined by Dr. Duncan Driver. Today, we dig into Cleave's profile on the beautifully contradictory soul 
that is George Harrison. This profile was fascinating to me because I personally find George to be the most complex and opaque beetle. So I appreciated the opportunity to consider some of his defining characteristics as outlined by Cleve more deeply. Not only does she capture parts of him very well, he is equally open and revealing at this time. And this is important because I find there are so many sweeping generalizations about George. But what I found when digging deeper was that so many of those beliefs didn't really bear out. For example, George doesn't seem to have been done with the Beatles in 1966 or 1964 or 1969. He doesn't even seem to be done with the Beatles in 1970, and he was even open to some form of reunion with the Beatles at various times in the 70s. Also, the stereotypes don't prove to be true. George is neither enlightened saint nor curmudgeon. Enlightened curmudgeon may be getting warmer, but still, George is so much more than that. I came across a quote from McCartney recently. He said that George was a cocky little guy. He had a good sense of himself. He wasn't cowed by anything. He had a great haircut. Well, I can't really argue with any of these. Add a sprinkling of witty, rebellious, perfectionist, pig-headed, spiritual, and a creative genius, and we're getting closer. But perhaps I should allow you to draw your own conclusions from George's pronouncements and Maureen's observations. Duncan and I certainly dug deeply in an effort to understand George. In fact, we met a couple of times to discuss this interview, and we pulled in a couple of additional elements, such as enneagrams and additional interviews, in order to enhance and go deeper on some of the insights that we uncovered when discussing this profile. As a result, this episode is perhaps less tightly focused than the other episodes. It has more twists and turns, and we go down a couple of rabbit holes, but it's all in an effort to understand George. As a reminder, these interviews were done by the Beatles with the intent of disrupting the one-note characterizations that had defined them. They were so frustrated with being pigeonholed as the cute one, the sad sack, or the surly one, or the witty smart one. Well, actually, that one was pretty great, but even that got tiresome for John Lennon. So they invited Maureen Cleave, a journalist they liked and respected, into their homes and lives in order to communicate who they were and how they looked at that time. And I'm so thrilled they did because this is such an incredibly important time for the Beatles. And so I plan to continue an exploration into the arc of this time, 1966 and 1967. And there was no better way I could think of to set the stage for that than to explore these profiles, which were done before the recording of Revolver. This is part one of a two-part episode Part two will be out in the next week, and it focuses on George's home life, his relationship with Patty, and his thoughts on authority, which, given George's rebellious nature, are always interesting. As always, Duncan and I read through the entire interview and comment upon it as we go. But at the end of both part one and part two, I've included a full read of the interview by Duncan Driver. So if you'd like to hear the entire interview, please jump to the last 15 minutes. If not, just follow through with us. So without further delay, let's jump into Cleve's profile on George Harrison.
Duncan. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm always happy to be back. It's great. So we are now about to start on George. There's been a lot of demand for George. I know. I'm going to try and not let the pressure get to me and just relax <laughs> and enjoy the conversation. Me too. Me too. Okay. I'm excited to talk about this because this is a great profile too. And, um, you know, with all of them, we've chosen to focus on not the UK versions. I think on the John one, we did the UK version. Uh, I think so. I, I at least was, I think, working from the UK version. So, yeah. But I also think that there are very few differences between the US and UK version when it comes to the John profile. It's true. And the Paul one, too, actually. The Paul one's pretty similar. These were done for the Evening Standard uh, in the spring of 1966, published in, in March and April 1966. And then they were published in the two magazines in the U.S., Datebook and Teen Life. And so the site that we took them from has various versions. The one that seems to have the most additional material in a latter American version is the Ringo one. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether that's a self-conscious thing that Cleve did or was requested to do on the basis of how Ringo has this greater popularity in the US compared to the UK. Are they, are they consciously beefing up his profile for the sake of his US image in the way that they're not too concerned about when it comes to the other Beatles? It, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, that that particular profile, does that one seem like it's way, way longer than the rest of them? Yeah, Ringo's one seems like it, it outstays its welcome slightly. It's just a bit <laughs> too long, I think. I know, when you were reading it, I was like, my God, this is a novel. It just keeps going and going, goodness <laughs> me. And Paul's is quite short compared to the it's others. It's disconcertingly brief, isn't it? It is, it is. Very typical. He's like, that's all I have to say interview is done it's very Paul. yeah 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 like paul's and, not doing a stroll through his house like john is you know yeah yeah and i suppose the the profile of john's you get that that kind of manic energy like john wanting her to be enjoying the indian music as much as he is i remember i was thinking about that the other day and my mind then went to that home video footage from 1980 where i think they're in um on Long Island or something like that. Yeah. And he's trying to tell Yoko about this house that they- Oh visited. yeah, that's right. That's in the bottom of a valley. And he, and he keeps doing this kind of thing with his hands where he's, he's, he's creating the shape, the V shape of the valley with the house nestled in between them. And he gets angrier and angrier with this. Saying, You're not listening to me. It was in the bottom of this valley. And, and I, for some reason, it just seemed like the same sort of impulse. Are you listening? Yeah. John, John yeah. he. He has to have his enthusiasms reflected back. To he does. And he was definitely not getting it from Yoko. No, that's in right. In that video. Yeah. And maybe, <laughs> yeah, Ringo's one seems more more leisurely. Um, but that, I suppose, reflects a little bit of Ringo himself. You know, I think of the get back sessions where he's just sort of content to sit there and be in the room uh, a lot of the time. And yeah, there's that sort of general contentment, happy with uh, with long silences. <laughs> well, as we said, that may have been something that he cultivated in his youth in the hospital bed, you know, just a yeah, patience. Yeah. I wish the Paul profile had been that long. I would have loved it if it was at his house with Jane. I would have loved her observations on both of those things. 
Mm. And maybe with other members of the Asher family kind yes, of coming in yes. and out in the background. That would have been interesting. Yes, exactly. You know what? Actually, that would have been even more interesting if it had been at the Asher place. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, frankly, Paul was there for three and a half years. Like, it wasn't just a little stint. It was like mm. he was there for a very long time. Mm. And so I would have loved that because I get a lot from her observations of the home life. I would have liked her observation on Cynthia too, actually. Mm. Yeah, and in this George <laughs> profile, she moves the pieces of it around quite considerably so that yeah, what appears at the beginning of one is now kind of in the middle of the other. It's like she's she's reworked the jigsaw puzzle into a completely different piece. Right. The UK version, we were just talking about this before, but the UK version is much more concise it would have been easier to go through because it's, you know, it's been more finely edited. But the U.S. version, it has additional flourishes that are kind of interesting. Yeah, sure. You know, more interesting details that yeah. she had in the original one that I, I actually appreciated and I thought they'd be more fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I think probably like the title of the British one better. I think Avocado with Everything has a bit of a wry humor to it. It 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 suits George's bone dry irony. And this is the truth about me, kind of if it bespeaks something of George, it's that sort of humorless quality that he has sometimes that makes me like him less. It does. It's like no bullshitting here. I would have liked it if she would have called it the avocado scene, because that's one mm. of the funniest little catchphrases in there. I, I like it as a title because the more I thought about it, the more I thought avocado with everything sort of highlights something about George himself. It's a decent enough metaphor for George in 1966, because, you know, they call it an avocado pear in the same way that, you know, what we now call a TV was then a television set that uh, had this kind of aura of um, specialness, of sophistication. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's also sort of mildly <clears throat> exotic as well. And I think actually all of those things are kind of true of George himself in Mayfair, you know, in, the, in Swinging London in 1966. He is also ha has this sort of halo of, of sophistication about him that, that also is a little bit exotic. Like he has that vaguely Eastern quality, although he's from the <laughs> north of England. And like George talks about avocados being a bit waxy, yeah, um, yeah. that there, are, there can be a bit of an acquired taste. And maybe of the four <laughs> Beatles, George himself is the one who is the most of, uh, acquired taste. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, you know, like an avocado too, George has a kind of appealing exterior that, that is maybe a bit soft, but there's this sort of hard core inside. <laughs> yeah. These are all the thoughts I had about how, how apt avocado with everything is as a title. Right. Yeah, I was laughing at the truth about me because that's so not George, actually. <laughs> no. As if George would ever say that. No, that's right. In, like, it, it reminds me of John's comment that the, the, the mystery at the heart of George is, you know, endless. Or so, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like that, that John's point was, George is kind of obvious to work out from my perspective. I can see what his issues are and his problems are. But George seems to find himself endlessly unfathomable. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
there was kind of a a paternal kind of like it's fun to watch George unravel those mysteries, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's a slightly superior tone yes, to yes. it. You know, it, it takes George 50 years to figure out something about himself that everyone else <laughs> has known the whole time. <laughs> well, Mr. Lennon, perhaps the same could be said about you. Yeah, so. yeah. Pot kettle black Lennon. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. So we are going to follow the same process, play the same game that we did last time, which is that Duncan is going to read it through until one of us desperately wants you to stop. And so we'll cry, stop, and we'll discuss. Okay. It's kind of a fun game. And you know what the fun part is, is that people on Twitter have said that they feel like they want to be able to say, stop at certain parts and and have us discuss it, or at least they want to discuss it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the more we do this, the more I, I'm kind of casting furtive glances at you going, do, should, should I keep going? Do, do, do you have something? You haven't said stop. Nope, keep going. <laughs> okay, so let's um, jump Smith, into George, George and the Avocado Sticks. Okay. All right. Here we go. One, two, three, four. <laughs> This is the truth about me. George tells everything, but everything, about himself and Patty to Maureen Cleave, Teen Life magazine, December 1966 issue. It is hard to understand why a delightful and original human being such as George Harrison should have left so much fainter an impression on the general public than the three other Beatles. But this, alas, is unaccountably so. George is 23, the youngest and the least well-known. He has not the aggressive self-assertion of John Lennon, nor the pretty innocence and wicked wit of Paul McCartney, nor the extraordinary visual appeal of Ringo. He writes few songs and sings little. He stands in the middle with a vacant smile upon his lips, gazing at the floor and strumming vaguely on his guitar. But there's nothing vague about George. He's alert to everything surrounding him. Stop! I, I was anticipating <laughs> that stuff. <laughs> well, that's a pretty packed paragraph. Yeah, there's a um, lot there. It's true. You know what's funny about this paragraph is she asserts how could George be overlooked and then goes on to explain why exactly he's <laughs> overlooked. It's like, oh, because he is standing next to the clown car that he's with all the time. You know, it's pretty, yeah, yeah. pretty difficult to stand out next to um, John, Paul and Ringo. I actually think her um, summaries are pretty good. John's aggressive self-assertion, mm. which is true. That is a good mm. way of, uh, you know, summarizing yeah, John, John. John insists upon himself. That's how I might put it. <laughs> he absolutely does. And then I think she quite loves the dualism of McCartney mm. that she repeats in Paul's profile, which yeah. is actually coming next. She's already gleaned that this is the intriguing dualism of Paul is this combination of innocence and wickedness you yeah know? yeah um i like although 
I don't know that I agree that she, when, when she says George does not have the extraordinary visual appeal of Ringo. That might have been true in 1966. George may have had a kind of uh, a blander aspect to him. But I think the way George looks then has improved over time, if you know what I mean. It's a photos of George in 66 have aged well and that he looks Yeah, they're, they're kind chic. of iconic. Yeah, yeah, they're very iconic and modish. And I mean, her hitting on this extraordinary visual appeal of Ringo, I mean, I had to laugh at that. It was like, <laughs> calm down, Maureen. He's not that funny looking. Poor Ringo, he keeps reading about this. Like she really has gone over the top. I mean, he's a good looking guy with a big nose. You yeah, know, yeah. I find Ringo quite nice looking. And I think she conflates mm. that with Ringo's aura of just being an original. Yeah, she seems to think a uh, a pop star should yeah. have this sort of striking, energetic, distinctive quality to them. Yeah, yeah. And the world has not yet created generations of pop stars who are darker and more brooding. Yes, and yes. more um, uh, cooler, I suppose, is the word for it. Yeah. And and George kind of embodies that before it would come to exist. Yeah, I mean, look at Oasis. They basically just borrowed his 1960 or stole his 1966 look, you know? Yeah, totally. And she does comment later on about what a stunning figure he cuts. So she gets that. And then she goes on to say he stands in the middle with a vacant smile, gazing at the floor, strumming vaguely mm. on his guitar. She's kind of making a different point here. She's saying that that images can be a little bit deceptive here, mm. that you know we look at him and we assume certain things, but in reality, there's nothing vague about George. He's alert to everything. He's truly delightful and original. I think part of it is that when I see the Beatles in performance, I see John and Paul doing their makshal thing. Yeah, for sure. And and they, they draw a bit of attention to themselves as performers. A bit. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, whereas the, for me, the agenda for George seems to be more on creating the music itself. He's not trying to draw attention to his performance. He's trying to play the music as well as he can. And so that has the effect of kind of revealing the art while hiding the artist. Absolutely. I, I agree. And I, I think, um, you know, I think of Paul and John, especially, they demand attention. They demand mm. it. They are very, very showy. Mm. And George just isn't. And I think that's something that makes George very appealing. Is he's so much less needy than yeah. those two. You know what I mean? He's just like, I'm just going to play the music. I just love music. And yeah. I think that's something that's very, I think that's what a lot of people are drawn to, is that George doesn't need the attention. Of course, John and Paul are extremely amusing and incredible performers, so I love what they do too. George just doesn't need as much attention as they do. No, that's right. The like happiness to John and Paul seems to be when the spotlight is on them. Yeah. But for George, it's when he can disappear into something else. Into something else. Exactly, exactly. As we'll talk about going totally, forward. Totally, totally. All right, okay. next little next little bit. Mm -hmm. Good old George is how he used to describe himself. Good old average George plodding along a mere morsel. Stop. He, oh, okay. Oh, that's the best one. Uh, yeah, I think this is a really, really interesting, complicated 
statement. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I looked at this line a lot because I think it both reflects his own self-image while also showing frustration that this was his image. You know what yeah, I mean? It's like yeah, yeah. good old George is how he used to describe himself. So, you know, maybe he has evolved and now sees himself differently. But then he says, good old average George plodding along a mere morsel. You know, there's a frustration with being underestimated. Mm. And yet it's how he talked about himself. So to me, that shows a lot of the inner conflict of George. And it is interesting that he saw himself as good old George. You know, this idea that he was dependable, could be counted on. He's not flashy. It's not like he portrayed himself as you know, cool old George, it's good old George, you know, you can count on him. And then he calls out average. And again, I think that's more, he's frustrated with the way that other people saw him, good old average George. Yeah, yeah. You know what it reminds me of? That line in um, Not Guilty, when he sings, I am not trying to upset the apple cart. I only want what I can get. It's like, I'm perfectly happy with a few scraps from the Mm -hmm. table from Lennon Mm -hmm. and McCartney. And as a part of him that genuinely means that, like he would consider acquisitiveness and greed to be human flaws that he doesn't want to be guilty of. But at the same time, he's kind of accusing these grander figures of throwing him a chicken bone once in a (laughs) while and expecting him to be happy with it. I know, I know. That seems to be the conflict. Yeah, yeah. But but didn't you find this was an interesting sentence? Yeah, like, yeah, it's it, at the same time, it's him sort of aligning himself with modesty, like I'm a, a salt of the earth stout yes. yeoman or something. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and at the same time, accusing other people of seeing him as a miserable worm. Or no, as seeing him as a salt of the earth average guy. Mm, it's mm. kind of like he calls himself that and gets pissed off that other people <laughs> see him that way. Don't you think? It's kind yes, of I like... Do. Yeah, yeah. It's okay if I say it, but it's not okay if you say it. Like, exactly. Uh, I can criticize the Beatles, but don't you do it. And if I want to be humble, that's fine. But there are other times when I'll say you don't treat a Beatle that way. Exactly. It's, it's kind of like he wants to be humble, but he wants his specialness to be seen at the same time, you know? Yeah, that's fine. You know, when I think about George at the Liverpool Institute, the stories from Michael McCartney, he always talks about George really standing out Mm. in terms of his looks. He was a bit of a rebel and, and refused to comply with the uniform standards, but he also kind of didn't put that much out there when he was there it's just an interesting it's an interesting element of george yeah no i agree um the bit that i was going to comment on is the second sentence here okay he's the only beetle with two surviving parents still married to each other and there is indeed something stable and solid about george um i I don't disagree with her um but to me this gets at the heart of something that that i scratch my head at a little bit George is the only Beatle who did not lose a parent at an early age in some way, shape or form. And yet in some ways he seems to be the Beatle with the biggest chip on his shoulder. 
about oh, sure. the, the rest of the world. And that can be a little bit frustrating as a Beatle fan. Like <laughs> you want George to enjoy his success a bit more. Yeah, yeah. And, and you want him to, I don't know, because he's come from such a stable upbringing, you think, why are you so sour all of the time? Oh, and yeah. I, I don't always have that impulse about George, but some of the time I do. Yeah, you know, I interviewed uh, Chris O'Dell and she just said there's really three parts to George. One of them is like the most fun guy you've ever met. The second part is the spiritual, but almost obsessively spiritual. And then the third part is just pissed off and sour. And I guess the challenge is to just try and understand these various sides of George and try to get underneath them. Like what's driving them? You know, I don't think it's enough just to say, well, you know, who knows? I think the challenge is to try and um, unravel the mystery that is George. Mm, And I had to think about this statement because like it immediately made me think of the fact that John talked about this. Do you remember this? Mm. John talked about this in right around the breakup. I can't remember if it was in Lennon Remembers or in a different interview, but it was at that time where he talked about Paul was definitely more stable than him or George. Yeah. And I I thought about that because I thought um, that that was true. But I did get the sense of what she was saying. And then I thought, but at the same time, I also see what John is saying. And so I was trying to reconcile these. And I think what I concluded was that I don't get the same neediness Mm. from George. Yeah, maybe that's where the, the stable family upbringing yes. plays into it he doesn't need to compensate for you know the the absence of a parent's love by seeking it through exactly. fame and fortune exactly like john and paul are in their own ways gaping wounds of neediness yeah. you know they're like john needs to be adored he needs the approval of the world he needs the attention you know that he himself talked about you know yeah and, and, and paul's constantly trying to make up for the absence of his mother or, or kind of prove like fulfill her ambitions for exactly. him exactly exactly yeah. he's constantly trying to fulfill her ambition to lift the family up and there's no mm. end to it because she died yeah I don't feel like that with George. I don't feel that there's a gaping wound with George that he needs something from the public. He doesn't need to be as adored Mm. as them. I do think the chip, he does have a chip and let's talk about that later. I suspect that comes more from not wanting to have to perform, but also wanting to be seen. Yeah, yeah. wanting to play the guitar, but not wanting to be a star as he sings in that song, Cockamimi Business. (laughs) Exactly. Or he wants to be seen as a star, but then not really wanting to have to perform. Yeah. You know, and play for it hard anyways. That's how I took her stability. Like, I think Paul is quite stable in some ways too, except for in Mm. his excessive need for success. His excessive drive Mm. seems to be driven by some form of instability, whereas George doesn't have that gaping need. But I do see him as the prototypical youngest child um, who is just used to getting attention, but always has this frustration of, take me seriously, you know? Yeah, 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 true. Let me tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the 
A lot of people like Invest because they think wrongly that nobody else does. That's, I, I kind of want to stop there. I, I realize it's just one sentence, but I don't have a, a lot to say about it. I just want to say, and hasn't that persisted well into the 21st century? All of these day tripper Beatles fans who think they're being original, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. unique, and kind of throwing a curveball at you by saying, I hate the Beatles, but I quite like George. Yes. It's like, I think they're that being is very captured. discerning. That's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. Really, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like everybody thinks they've uniquely discovered like the most sophisticated choice you know exactly i think partly if you're coming into the beatles everybody's heard of lennon mccartney and they're so showy that i think somebody who's like i'm more discerning i see george is pretty cool you know he's not fighting for my attention and there's something quite mm. attractive about that you know he's, he's just off doing his own thing yeah i think it's partly that i think it's partly what i said earlier about how george's aspect seems to have gotten more fashionable and likable as the 20th century became the 21st century yeah yeah some of his the the, the core aspects of his character became more on vogue um yes. I, th I think it is partly the fact that george is just a bit of an acquired taste as well like the more time you spend with the beatles the more you can become interested in George. Yeah. Um, somebody, somebody once said the chords he plays, uh, like a, they're less chords and more a cluster of dissonant notes. And that's a bit like an acquired <laughs> yeah, taste. You know, they, the more, they get more interesting the more you hear them and the more like the immensity of Hey Jude becomes something you can't even hear anymore. So you yeah. start to hear the dissonant notes that George is playing. Yes, yes. And you have to pay attention. It's in the details, you know. Mm. It's not on the surface like it is with the other two. But I think a lot of us Deep Beatles fans love George for that reason. His charms reveal themselves when you spend time with him. Mm. And I think that we can sense that George is is good and he's a seeker but also his interest in spirituality and and meditation yeah but it's pretty funny though because it's like nobody pays attention to the the polls that show that george is now the most popular beetle so yeah. if you think you're being original you are not that's right and that, you... that was the point that i was trying to make <laughs> at the outset of this little section they feel he has been overlooked Indeed, one comes across people who suppose that George is stupid and dull. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> I like, again, I, I'm kind of still riffing on this theme. Um, the thing about George being overlooked, I like Rob Sheffield's comment on this. He said, um, George became famous as the underrated Beatle, which raises the question of how famous it's possible to get for being overlooked and still qualify. You know, he's, he's overlooked to a degree, but he's still in The Beatles, the biggest band of all time, and everyone knows his name. So he's not that overlooked. Yeah, I mean, I guess the greatness of his genius in, in guitar is a little bit overlooked because his fame over... It's like all of them as musicians are overlooked, but I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I, I also agree with what she says here, that... Um, Anyone who thinks that George is stupid and dull is wrong. A lot of this interview demonstrates the exact opposite, that he's actually quite clever, but sharp as well. Um, yeah, the, the very opposite of dull. So she's right to say nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, 
that's interesting. Uh, you know, in the, the Hunter Davies bio, I, I read that um, for all of for all of these interviews, I read that at the same time because you know there are deep interviews given within a year, year and a half of each other, and you know just provides additional detail. And he says the same thing in there too. And I just can't imagine anybody. I guess because we know George now, that is not mm. part of his image or aura. But he mentions the same thing that that's the assumption with George. Uh, again, <laughs> just because George has a bit of a resting bitch face when he plays, <laughs> you know, I think he concentrates and gets very into his music and, yeah. you know, is not constantly reacting. Um, maybe it gives this impression. Yeah. So- and when you see the Beatles in interviews, Paul looks like he's having a good time and, um, John looks like he's being playful and mischievous. And then you kind of look to the side and see George and he's got this weird, slightly lopsided smile on his face, but it's, it's one that suggests he's kind of removed and a little bit superior to everything that's he is, happening. He's, like judging. He's, a bit, he's, a, he's judging of everyone in the room. <laughs> but that doesn't suggest dull or stupid no. it's, it suggests exactly he is judging everyone it's very wry so i can't help but read that into george you know that he's very clever and he's always judging that's true <laughs> george got into the liverpool institute yeah like paul yeah and that's a good measure of the fact that his innate ability and intelligence was very high he's one of the few chosen because you know, Paul was, I think, one of three from his year, and I'm sure George was the same, and Mike McCartney was the same. Like, these are incredibly bright kids. I think that's a reflection of how intelligent and capable they were. Now, they had very different careers once they got there, you know, where George did absolutely nothing. Like, he had that hilarious report card from, do you remember this? Yeah, I've, I've, I would have read it before. I can't remember it word for word, but I know what you're talking about. They basically say they have no idea what his capabilities are because, he's never he, did, there. because he did absolutely nothing yeah, yeah. the whole time he was there. So, <laughs> you know, so again, this obstinance showed up early in, in George where he had all the intelligence in the world, you know, and another working class kid that was bussed off to the best education that he could have in Liverpool. And yet he did absolutely nothing. And I was just wondering about that, like why... George chose to (laughs) not do it. Like he was rebellious and showed up with his own style, like we just talked about, and stubbornly refused to do anything at all. And I don't know whether that is a little bit of insecurity, like whether he was just like, I don't know if I can do this, so I'm not even going to try. Because he does have... You know, as we've read and as I've read more and more about George, I think his working class roots are quite internalized by him. Mm -hmm. So there could be that, that I just, uh, you know, I don't know if I can do this, so I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to do anything. And then I, you know, never have to completely fail because I never tried. Or whether he, he was just so disinterested in it. Yeah, hard to know. It it is surprising. There's, there's almost a kind of bravery to being so dismissive. Yes. Every way a society tells you, you make a life for yourself. And, you know, these are important decisions that that can make or break your entire adulthood. And he just doesn't give a shit about any of it. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, we I, talk about him being rebellious, and yeah. this is like twelve-year-old George being yeah. like, "I refuse to lift a finger, even though I was given this gift of good education because of my own innate abilities." You know? Yeah, it's like um, it, it, some people who who know less than we do about this stuff might see the Rolling Stones as this sort of more rebellious, dangerous act. But yeah. I don't know, Mick Jagger seems, at least as a personality, to be so much more um, cautious, so much more willing to play the game. He's playing and, the game. Yeah. yeah. And clever. clever. Very clever. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But um, I can't see him, even as, a, as an adolescent, making a kind of life-altering decision to his detriment <laughs> just to make a point. Whereas George clearly was doing that. <laughs> well, and I do, I do wonder if it's a rebellious working class thing. Like something about the fact that he dressed up so defiantly made me think that there was, you know, how he talks about being like a scruffy lout, that there's something that is like, he almost rejects them preemptively. Yeah. Or it could just be that none of those subjects engaged him because when he engaged with Indian music, with Indian spiritualism and philosophy, he was such a phenomenal student. And when I hear him talking about in 1967, when he's on Parkinson or whatever he was on with John, he's so clear. He has absorbed it so well. Like he's an excellent student. Yeah, sometimes I... Um... I really admire how much George just doesn't give a shit. Like in the 1950s, he's more rock and roll than anyone from that perspective. And it probably makes him, I can see why other people think of him as the coolest Beatle because, you know, everyone's idea of cool is about not giving a shit. And at the same time, I I sometimes find it a bit frustrating that um, he sees nothing of value anywhere in this, the first 20 years of his right, life. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so that he is going to erase it is what he yeah. says. But, but also the not giving a shit rebelliousness is never, I don't care. Underneath that, there is something that cares a lot. Like there's, it's never simple like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd, you'd have to care about something to be so dismissive of something else. Yes, that's what I mean. Like There's some principle almost, at play. Yeah, There is a principle at play, and I feel like it's a defensiveness. You can't reject me because I'm rejecting you, and I'm not even going to try. Now, he was also very, very clear in what he did. That's where I think the George is his own man is true, like his embracing of rock and roll of Indian music just seems to come from his soul and he doesn't give a shit when anybody else thinks, you know? Yeah, that's also so so rock and roll, isn't it? Yeah. Not to give a shit about what, about appearing, I don't know, unfashionable, despite the fact that he's dressed in the height of fashion all of the time and is very sensitive to it. He doesn't, genuinely doesn't care whether his enthusiasms would make him seem un- uncool in other people's eyes, which paradoxically right. makes him cooler. Right. In some ways, George doesn't seem to care about whether he's cool in the way that John does. Like, I think John has a very good finger on the pulse of what's cool. Mm. Always, Mm. always. And he's always protective. And, and, you know, Paul talks about that, about how 
growing up in an environment where he wasn't living with his mom and his mom was living with a guy that she wasn't married to and his dad was like, there was all these things that he could be attacked about. So he had to be super protective and cool. Mm. I don't get the sense that George cares so much if he's viewed as cool. Yeah, I quite agree. He is a strong-willed and uncompromising character with a strict regard for what he considers to be the truth and an even stricter regard for his own rights. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so so many important statements jam-packed right at the front of this, sure, aren't there? Sure. Yeah, I think all of them are like this. You can, you can unpack the first few paragraphs for hours and then yeah. maybe there's a slight law of diminishing returns where she gets a little more rhapsodic or something towards the back end of the articles and there's less to say about it. Yes. Yeah, it's like she sort of outlines the main pillars of who these people are before going into the description of their place and how they live and some of their attitudes. Yeah. She, she captures so much. I mean, uh, this is a really important point, you know, and I think this is one that should be taken more to heart because you hear so many people saying that they feel badly for George. Mm. And to some extent, I do too, when you look at Get Back, because the dynamics of the band were really created when they were all young and George was the youngest, like they're all trapped in roles that were created when they were 15, 16. But on the other hand, you know, feeling badly for George is a little bit disrespectful because he is really strong-willed mm. and uncompromising. And from all accounts, he always was, you know, as I just mentioned, when he went to the Liverpool Institute, he showed up in a modified uniform and really stood out and never changed it. You know, that was yeah, yeah. Mike McCartney admired him for having giant hair that was coiffed and never conforming. And also, it really made me think of the story about George's father. So the, the statement that you just read is, he's a strong-willed and uncompromising character with strict regard for what he considers to be the truth and an even stricter regard for his own rights. Paul tells the story about how they were caned in school and George comes home and his father notices that he's been caned and asks what happened. And then he finds out that George has been caned. And then George's father the next day goes to school, finds a teacher, asks if he was the one that caned George and then punches him. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I just thought that's so fascinating like it's so interesting that george had a father that had his back like that that's saying mm. it's not okay to do that to my son like he grew up with somebody saying that you have rights mm. and this seems to have been deeply internalized by mm. george and what's really interesting to me is the one who tells the story is paul mm. and he admires it so much you know paul obviously adores his father but his father taught him duty and politeness at all costs. Yeah. And if, if Paul had come home with the obvious marks of corporal punishment, Jim's reaction would have been, what did you do to What did you do? That? What did you do? But I think those were important lessons. And I think it formed who they are. You see mm. this, that Paul says he's always guilty, you know, about what did he do? And I think that George has much more of an attitude, like, he is much more self-honoring in that way. Like, yeah, yeah. You don't do that to me. I think some of what Jim taught Paul is he was honoring to other people and polite to other people, but sometimes he was not to himself. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a nice way to put it. I think um, both sides of this coin you're examining come with um, strengths and weaknesses. Sometimes when I, when I hear anyone banging on about their rights, there's a part of my brain that's quietly thinking, you know what, rights go hand in hand with responsibilities. And yes. you're very concerned with the one <laughs> without acknowledging the, the other. And yeah, what you say about Jim and probably Mary McCartney as well, there's such a strong emphasis and it's such a weight of responsibility that it's to the detriment of their their health and what is probably their rights as, as human beings. Um, George swings and maybe his father does too in totally the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I guess on the downside, I sometimes think that George seems to lack a little empathy for the other person's perspective. Mm. And I actually think we see some of this behavior in the breakup and beyond, actually. Yeah. George may be so focused on the fact that he was wronged mm. that he's almost unable to empathize and see Paul was hurting too. Yeah. And actually, it makes me think of John in the St. Regis interview, you know, how mm. he sort of complains, like, you can't tell George anything. Yeah. So That's right. And, and um, every time you hear Mark Lewison talking about George, he likes to rem to tell the story about how George made up his mind about Mark Lewison very quickly and that it's an example of how George was unshiftable in any opinion that he had, <laughs> no matter how many people, including, you know, Neil or Derek or anyone, that wh whoever went to bat, went into bat for, um, for Mark, that they could not shift George's opinion that Mark was not to be trusted. I read something the other day an anecdote from Stephen Stills. And he talked about meeting George and he said that George was lovely, but he also said that George was much more opinionated than people would think and tough. And I thought that was interesting too, because it's, it's a little bit, it's a slightly different point than George being immovable, but the idea that he was very opinionated and tough mm. suggests that George was not a pushover. That's right. Yeah. And it's worth remembering that when people are being critical of John or Paul as these dominant personalities and poor George suffering under the yoke of them, like he couldn't stand up for himself when he clearly could and did. That's right. Having said that, I was also thinking about the fact that the man also had to have had an enormous amount of patience. I think when pushed too far, he would stand up for himself. And Lennon and McCartney knew that. When George left, they were kind of like, oh shit, he's digging in. We know that he's unshiftable, so we have to give in to him. But I personally think that George was especially sensitive in that environment because of the cameras. Mm, like in yeah. Get Back, he, and he talked about that later, about the, the cameras being on. I think it made him very aware of the dynamics of the Beatles. You know, the dynamics that he would probably just ignore or let go, it made him very aware of how he was being treated by them and embarrassed. That's an excellent point. Yeah, I think um, it's not just that the cameras make him or, or anyone else self-conscious, although that's part of it. It's more that alien element makes you see the situation you're in in a slightly more objective way like almost like you're looking at it for the first time yes and how other people are going to judge you based yeah. on that and it confronted him with things that he might have dismissed and that became uncomfortable and he left so he made a stand 
as we said, that when it comes to that, he will stand up for himself. But I don't think he was always able to advocate for himself. Yeah. And they're kind of different things. Very true. Like he comes in and he doesn't sell his stuff all that well. Yeah, he starts undercutting it and he says things like, I don't care if you like it or not. Clearly you do, which is why he would <laughs> yeah. say that in the first place. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like being at school and, and refusing to engage with stuff, you know, to choosing not to present a lot of his songs at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, well, they're not going to do justice to them, so I'm going to just hold them back. Exactly. And I don't think it's because he doesn't want them to do them. It's because I don't, it's a little bit defeatist. And so I'd like to parse out the, George can protect himself and stand up for himself and he's opinionated, but he's not always his best advocate. But I was also thinking that he has a very long fuse because I was thinking about the years and years that he had to put up with Lennon and McCartney's shenanigans of the two of them fooling around with each other in yeah. just wasting studio time, which isn't complete shenanigans. They are actually working together, but he was a little bit of an observer and, you know, to have to put up with that over all the years and have a pretty good attitude towards it means that he's also very patient. That's so true. You know, when you think of all of those archive editions of Beatles albums and the studio chatter, it's just John and Paul, you know, <laughs> exactly. having these, these constant sort of running commentary of pissing about, which is play, really. Yes, I yes. can see George sitting there with his guitar waiting for the next take. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, there's this quote by Pete Best, how he said he would look and sit and watch the shows. And it was always a game between who was going to own the audience more. Was it John or was it Paul? And one night it would be John and the next night it would be Paul. And he said, and then the games didn't end there. They would leave the stage and then they would go on to playing the games. Like it infiltrated every part of their life. And just imagine being, oh, for fuck's sake, could you guys calm down, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And so... One walkout in 12 years. I mean, the man is a saint. Granny Smith, boss, begging to. Tell you. That's a nice song. Tell you. You've never had a title, so for anything's ever done, Paul. Lax and superb. Here it comes again, the music changes. I asked to be successful, he said. I never asked to be famous. I can tell you I got more famous than I wanted to be. I never intended to be the big cheese. <laughs> Stop. Go on then. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is really important too. Like this is, you know, these, these interviews are so great for really deeply thinking about these guys, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was the, really the first interviews that they gave that really allowed you some deep insight into them. Yeah. And, you know, at first glance, I thought, well, this is a bit disingenuous, George, because yeah. he wanted to be a rock star. It's not like he didn't know what he was getting into. You know, he loved all yeah. the same rock stars as the other three. But on the other hand, I do think that George would have been much happier if he had been someone who had some success, as in <laughs> he'd gotten to number five, as in he had had songs in the top 20. Yeah. George wanted enough success to be able to do what he wanted to do, which was music. Yeah. But I don't think he wanted to be 
<laughs> one of the great phenomenons of the 20th century, <laughs> you know? And one doesn't really blame him because George is more introverted. You know, he isn't Lennon or McCartney who absolutely wanted to be famous. You know, like Mick Jagger was once asked why the Beatles broke up. And he said, well, because John Lennon wanted to be the most famous person in the world. Yeah. And, you know, Paul himself says that he's the world's most competitive person. I mean, these two are mega ultra driven. They wanted to be the best of the best of the best. And I don't think he wanted to be that. I think he wanted to be able to make his music, say what he wanted to say, but not have that much pressure on him. No, I quite agree. I think maybe what he thought the Beatles might achieve is kind yeah. of Joe Walsh or Jerry and the Pacemakers exactly. level success. That's his comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, like just to be a traveling musician that makes enough cash to have an okay life and do what he likes. But then part of me thinks, yeah, but I may be underestimating George's ambition because it's cool for George to do that when he's a Beatle. Mm. To be like, you know what, I'm just going to do pick up with this group and I'll just be in the background. And yeah, yeah, he can do that because he's George fucking Harrison. He's like one of the most powerful people in the world, you know? And yeah. so it's kind of, it's like ultra he's slumming cool. it. In, in he's slumming it and it's kind of sexy. He's like, I don't need the adulation. I'm just one of the guys. But if George was yeah. actually at that level of fame, I'm pretty sure he would be working really hard to get to the next level. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. He's very happy to put himself in the background of Delaney and Bonnie. And then next year, he'll put out his monolithic free record <laughs> set with George Harrison written on the front of it. Exactly. I think it's maybe that George does want to be successful and acknowledged for being successful. And if he hadn't made it with the Beatles, to the extent that they did, I think that he would have pushed to get to a certain level. I just think that maybe that level was a little bit below the insanity that John and Paul sit at, yeah. which is more famous than anyone has ever been. He says specifically he did not want to be the big cheese because he doesn't even like the big cheeses. And now he's one of them, you know? Yeah. And that, that's the that's the galling thing, isn't it? Yeah. All of the things he's most critical of, he, he acknowledges that he kind of embodies. <laughs> like as soon as he starts um, attacking people for having big gates, all I could think of is the entrance to Friar Park. <laughs> No, I know, but it puts him into this position where he has this massive power. And that's probably always been a, a conflict to him. He was given this, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, you know, that <laughs> British comedian, Michael Palin, who was in Monty mm -hmm. Python. Yeah. Um, I read one of the volumes of his diaries and he talks about hanging out with George in the 70s. And George trying to convince Michael to move out of his four bedroom London house and get an enormous mansion and saying, you know, when we make life of Brian together, you'll be able to get a place like this because I were in Friar Park at the time. And Michael says, actually, George, I'm, I'm quite comfortable in my family home. And George kind of got a little angry. And, but also he was, you know, saying it with that bone dry irony that George has. Nonsense, Palin. You'll have a mansion and you'll like it. <laughs> but to me, that suggests, like, if I have to endure this as much as I'm enjoying it, then I want other people to have to be in the same position as me. Exactly. I think yeah, that internal yeah. conflict is always going on with George because he does enjoy it. 
and yeah. he probably feels like he's not supposed to enjoy it. That's but right. He was given this position and he's partly responsible for this position because he was so good, you know? Mm. There then followed a typical piece of Harrison logic. People keep saying, we made you what you are. Well, I made Mr. Woolworth what he is, and I don't go around crawling over his gates and smashing up the wall around his house. I can't understand some of them being so aggressively bad-mannered. I suppose they feel belittled wanting something from four scruffy louts like us. Okay. That, to me, that, that's an example of how George can say something really sharp and really incisive. So he's not dull at all. That's, I think, a, yeah. a clever observation. Um, have, you, have you read John Higgs' new book, um, Love and Let Die? I'm just starting it. Oh, it's, it's really good. Um, but he makes the argument that uh, the, the set of people who were sophisticates in 1963 uh, and who rejected the Beatles for being talentless when they first yeah. appeared, like James Bond saying that uh, you have to listen to Be- Beatles with earmuffs, um, it became harder and harder to make the argument that they were talentless. And so... You know, they, by the time the Beatles are releasing Yesterday and, and Eleanor Rigby, the only way they could still be dismissive of the Beatles is to create conspiracy theories that it's really George Martin or <laughs> Brian Epstein who are the power behind the throne and the Beatles are just like idiotic puppets who are dancing <laughs> to the tune that these other people are playing. Um, yeah, a, little and, bit of cl- yeah. a little bit of class stuff going yeah. on there, yeah. That's right. So, yeah, the, the only way they can maintain their, the, the illusion that... Um, that being part of the the elite and the ruling class uh, means that you've you've earned that position by being part of the cream of society is you have to deny that the Beatles have any talent at all and it becomes harder and harder to do that. I think George is kind of making a similar point when he, he talks about people getting angry at the Beatles for kind of even existing and they somehow feel belittled by the Beatles' success and they want to destroy it. That's interesting. That's an interesting insight to this paragraph because I, I have a different take on it, but I actually, I agree with what you're saying. Like Beatles were criticized, even though they were globally adored, they were also highly criticized. And so that's what he could be referring to is some of the elites having to acknowledge mm. that good things can come from somewhere other than the areas that they control. Exactly. Yeah. John Higgs talks about how the, there's really two Englands. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of platonic ideal of England that exists in institutions like Eton and the Guards, Buckingham Palace, what he calls the other England, which is somehow actually more real because mm. the people who, who, who grow organically in these places have actual you know, accents and not a manufactured received pronunciation. 
I can't even remember the point that I was going to make, but yeah, um, I'm just interested in reading Higgs' book. So, um, John, John, if you're listening, I'm really enjoying it. And John is actually going to be on the podcast, so please oh, stay, stay tuned for a discussion about his book, but also he's doing a Hidden Gems episode. So Yeah, great, um, I can't wait. It's interesting in all of these, you can see how aware of class they all are. Yeah. But in this particular paragraph, what I found interesting was how grumpy George could be about his fans. Like, yeah. Do you mind rereading it? There then followed a typical piece of Harrison logic. People keep saying, we made you what you are. Well, I made Mr. Hovis what he is, and I don't go around crawling over his gates and smashing up the wall around his house. I can't understand some of them being so aggressively bad-mannered. I suppose they feel belittled wanting something from four scruffy louts like us. Okay, so I sat with this paragraph for a while because, you know, there are lots of accounts of George could be, as always, George could be incredibly generous and lovely with people, but generally he was pretty grumpy with fans, yeah, you know? Yeah. And as we were just talking about, like they're so famous, George being more of an introvert. And by introvert, I mean somebody who needs to disconnect to recharge himself. That this constant pull of, we need something from you, you know, like fans always are taking your attention. I think for somebody like George who wants to disconnect, it would be especially bothersome. And so there'd be an anger, like you're making me do something I don't want to do right now. And I don't like to do it half-assed. So I can see this conflict um, with him. He seems to see fans, like the way he's talking about them as creating havoc, you know, crawling over his gates and smashing up the walls. Like that sounds like (laughs) fans are chaos, you know? But I also thought that it's interesting that he read their motivation as angry. Yeah. I thought that was interesting that he didn't realize that their motivation is love, like obsessive love and want. And when he doesn't give it, it's this being hurt. And I just think that's interesting about George, that maybe sometimes he misreads people's actions. Yeah, and because he's kind of um, suspicious or paranoid about people and and suspects the darkest motives, then it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They start to become the person that George suspects them (laughs) of being. Exactly, exactly. And instead of sort of seeing it like, these people are desperately obsessed with me and that's making them do crazy things. I'm sure George feels like, I gave you something. I gave you the music. That's what I gave. I don't owe you anything else. Leave me alone. And it's this sense of like self-protection with George. But I do think he just misreads their motives a little bit. Mm. Um, And then this, I suppose they feel belittled wanting something from four scruffy louts like us. There's a class issue in there. You know, I think it's a really good indicator of how much his own self view, you know, for scruffy louts like us is kind of embedded in his view of the world. And obviously he's being a little bit self-deprecating here, but I think it is also betraying his thinking. Yeah, it's like that the the the, the mere morsel plodding along yes. ordinary George. Yes. He he's both kind of owning the fact of being a scruffy lout and accusing other people of thinking that he's that yes. thing. Yes, he's insulted that they think that of him, and yet he kind of betrays that that's how he thinks of them. You know, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> it is. God, it's, it's a complex one, isn't it? The fans that are coming up on the weekends, they're not the upper class. And that's where I feel like sometimes 
George is suspicious of their motives and misreads them where they just want him. I think there's part of him that just doesn't acknowledge how great he is. Like, it's almost like he doesn't see himself that way, so doesn't understand how much people love him and want stuff from him. And their craziness isn't coming from a place of, you're making me feel belittled. It's like, I want you. I suppose George recognizes that there's something destructive about the intensity of some Beatle fandom. Like, I don't know, if, if, if George did a stage dive into one of the arenas in 1964, they might have torn him apart. Well, they he would could have. have died. There were stories about them going down to the cavern and them emerging with like their clothes all ripped to pieces. Yeah, and that's that was right. the cavern. That's what I mean. So yeah, the, the, there's something sort of smothering or destructive about that that I think he's he's picking up on. Yeah, he picks up on the negative vibes. But if you would have stopped any of the fans that were outside the gate and yeah. asked them, do you think of the Beatles as scruffy louts? Do they make you feel embarrassed? It, it would be like, no, I just want a piece of his house. I love him so much, you know, yeah. which is a very different impulse than I want to destroy you because yeah. you make me feel bad. No, that's true. I think you're right to say George suspects motives that aren't necessarily there. Yeah, it, it's kind of almost like if Paul views the world through rose-colored glasses, yeah. George is the opposite, you know? Yeah, he sort yeah. of sees it through a bit of suspicion. Yeah, that's right. When when Cleve says earlier in the article that um, he's kind of alert to everything, that's yeah. partly because he's paranoid about everything. His <laughs> spidey sense is always tingling. He likes his views to be known. I want you to be sure and get this bit in my article, he kept saying when I went to see him. He is well informed and thinks more independently than the others. The other Beatles often think he is out on some kind of limb, but though they laugh at him, they often end up doing the same thing themselves. He was the first to buy his own house, the first to move out of London to the Weybridge area, the first to become interested in Indian music. He has a poor opinion of television and does not watch television during all its waking hours. He thinks Rolls Royces look dreadful. He is the only one with a practical knowledge of how things work. He can plug in an amplifier without electrocuting himself, and he can drive his Ferrari and arrive at his destination. I think there's a couple of things in there I could draw out. All right, let's hear them. Okay. Um, when he says, I want you to be sure and get this bit in my article, I think that's revealing. I think um, both he and Paul seem to me quite self-conscious about how the article will make them come across and they're actively trying to shape that process themselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas John and Ringo seem much more content to let Maureen Cleave write what she writes. And they're, they're probably interested in the process, but they're not as, um, yeah, they're not as concerned with how it will make them appear. Um, but Paul and George, I think, maybe do it in slightly different ways. Paul wants to correct a pre-existing image of him as being cute but vapid, yeah. Yeah. which is why he's you know, ostentatiously reading this book and thinking of clever things to say about um, hot-button issues like the race problem or you know, 
other other examples. Whereas I think George seems to see this article as a, a kind of platform being erected on which he's expected to make pronouncements. Yes. And he's he he kind of bears the responsibility of that. Um, he feels like he's compelled here to say something wise and moral and worthy. Yes. Otherwise, that the the article has been a waste. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. He wants to share. It's kind of his opportunity to share his wisdom with the world. That's right. I thought it was interesting that she'd write the other Beatles often think he is out on some kind of limb because I'd have assumed, maybe this is my error, that George would be the one to regard himself as isolated from the others, whereas this suggests George is more comfortable in his position and it's the other Beatles who think of George as this sort of separate person in his enthusiasms or or self-conscious about um, not being as much a part of the group. I think it shows that George is actually quite secure in his role in the group and their role in the world. As we discussed, the Cleve interview sort of suggests that the Beatles have now achieved a level of fame that they are secure in their place in the world. You know, I think that George's security And maybe his lack of extreme ambition gave him some spaciousness to pursue other interests in a way that was beneficial to him. Yeah. Like she calls him a really delightful original at the beginning. And I think that is true that he, that's something that I really like about George is that he seems to have space that isn't as pragmatic, isn't as cynical. There seems to be half of George It's much more romantic and just falls in love with things, you know? Mm. And I think so often we focus on George's frustration with the group. But when you read his interviews from 66 and 67, George is quite happy to have the ability to do these things. And I think that, you know, that you and I both empathize with the difficulty of the position of being in a band with Lennon and McCartney, not only because they're so good, but also because they're obsessed with each other. There was also a benefit where it gave George the time to play his guitar, to focus on the sitar that was probably important, that was incredibly important to him as a musician. Like he built part of his understanding of music was built on his love and appreciation of Indian music, you know? So he has the time and ability to delve into a new obsession in a way that was very positive for him. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes me think too that um, it wasn't just something that developed later as well. I think that that sense of security and the way that it manifested in being quite happy to do these little independent sorties is there from the beginning. Like George going to America a yeah. year before John and Paul. Yeah. Um, and, and those astonishing photos on the top of the Empire State Building where there's a, a beetle standing there and no one gives a shit. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're kind of amazing to look at. But then it also speaks to the sort of blinkered egocentrism of, of John or Paul or both 
that you know it's the Beatles discovering America in 1964, <laughs> and they just don't acknowledge that George had been in those exact locations one year previous. <laughs> Absolutely. But, and the thing is, is that when George was there, he went to the radio stations with the Beatles music. I mean, he was promoting the Beatles. Um, and I think that's an interesting element that I think all of the Beatles were always, always, always completely secure in the role in the Beatles. Nobody was ever going to be kicked out, ever. And I think that is the element, the family element of the Beatles, as in you can get really angry and annoyed with them and you can walk out, but you don't leave the you family. You never stop being a member of that family. John says at some point, he says that I would have liked to have been George. Yeah, I, I do. I acknowledge what John says there when he says, I wouldn't have minded being George. It's like, they're all in this um, life-threatening jungle and Paul yes. and John are at the front with machetes and they're yes. the ones who are kind of hacking vines to create a path and yet George is the one complaining about how awful it is. And I mean, you know, I think the frustration that George has is he's like, you weren't the only ones hacking, even though you think you were. Yeah. I was elevating all of your songs, which I believe. Mm, that's, I totally believe that too. Yeah, so he was like, don't think you were the only ones hacking. And I think that's his frustration, is you're not seeing how much I made your songs better. This is just to say that there were dynamics in the Beatles. And in some ways, he had a little bit more of the opportunity to devote times to his passions, he's able to follow stuff that he just legitimately loves. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I honestly think that Paul follows what he legitimate. It happens to be a happy thing for Paul McCartney that he loves writing pop songs and rock yeah. songs. Yeah, that's one of the world's greatest coincidences. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And John too. Like John needs this. Has a constant need to self-express. So they are doing what they love. So it's good. Whereas George seems to be a little bit, he likes writing songs. He loves contributing to the Beatles, but it, he's not going to give it everything. Mm. He's not going to um, torture himself into serious mental health problems doing it. Right. Exactly. I do yeah. wonder in this where he says that he has a poor opinion of television. It does not watch television during all its waking hours. And he thinks Rolls Royces look dreadful. I, I wonder if he's trolling. Um, he is. He's totally trolling. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was just about to say, speaking of calling a spade a spade, he's, exactly. he's calling certain Beatles certain things here. It's kind <laughs> of a, a critique of Ringo, maybe, but it's more a critique of John, John watching TV, the Rolls Royce. It's just Paul does the same thing. When he's exactly. Like of getting a bicycle with black windows. Exactly. They all love trolling each other, which is hilarious. Paul's like, thank God I went forth so that nobody can troll me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so she says here that he can plug in an amplifier without <laughs> electrocuting himself and he can, so there is this sense, like even in get back, you see that the George yeah. is the most techie, you know, it's his equipment and he yeah. does tend to think through details of like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pay? That's um, right. You know, we're like, not going to get a boat for free, John. And even <laughs> if we do, we're going to be stuck on a boat with 400 people. Exactly. So he thinks through some of the details and they do seem to trust George when it comes to some of the techier details. Paul, Paul does have this, um, I can figure things out as well in that he figured out how to do McCartney 
on his own. You know, I don't think it was especially sophisticated, but he did figure out how to plug things in and and make it on his own. Well, that's right. And he he kind of, as crude as it might have been, he renovated High Park Farm to become this kind of livable place. Not luxurious, but livable. Exactly. So so I think that there is um, maybe a just get it done attitude from both George and Paul that definitely neither John nor Rico have. (laughs) You get the sense that both of them are really okay with being like, I'm going to call somebody. It's not my Mm. thing. Yeah, totally. Um, And if I'm being honest, neither is it mine. I am more of a call somebody. Uh, Me too. I admire (laughs) that. I admire that about both John and Ringo. Get people with expertise in. In some sense, George is the strongest individual of them all. His way of life is different. He likes to rise at 10.30, which the average Beatle is the equivalent of the small hours. He has now got hold of the revolutionary idea that the Beatles should take exercise. Just swimming, he said hastily. <laughs> not exercise you'd notice. I want us all to be healthy in that, not going to clubs. I think it is, it, that's lovely. I think it's quite sweet that his mind goes to what's best for us yes he's thinking about the group so as as out on a limb as he might be he's not only thinking about his own physical and mental health and spiritualism he's genuinely like his instinct is to is to think democratically and um and generously about the group maybe maybe in paul's profile he's maybe a little bit more guilty of individualism and, and thinking, I do this, I want to do that. I have to know what's going on. It really bothers me if people know things that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, George, George seems to be a bit more we than Paul is. Well, and I, I think that that may get to an important element in the dynamic of the Beatles is that Paul did choose to not live with the Beatles. It's kind of like, I think that there is the family of the Beatles that maybe sometimes Paul separates it. It's like, I love my work and I love my Beatles family, but then I'm going to have this additional life that like he compartmentalize it. Whereas George, Ringo and John all live right around the corner from each other. They're very integrated in each other's lives. Like, I, yeah. I wonder if there's just a little bit of a, you know, more of a community dedication to the group. I honestly think this is something that really hurts John and George and Ringo when Paul walks away is, Mm. I think they were like, you can't walk away from our family, you know? And so I think what you're saying is an important part is that George is not saying, you know what, I wanna get healthy. I I think it's really important to be healthy. He wants them all to be healthy. I think that's very sweet. 
It is, it is. I mean, you could cast the same point in terms of buying shares in Northern songs. So uh, I don't mean to be overtly critical of Paul here. I could kind of see it from Paul's perspective. Um, he is quite legitimately trying to make good business decisions and, you know, shore up his own and his family's financial position by buying these additional shares. And it's, it's kind of perplexing to him that the others are, are criticizing him for that because they're just as free as he is to do those same things. He's going, you know, his attitude is, well, yes, I'm looking after myself. Mm. I kind of assumed that you would also be doing the same thing. Mm. Um, whereas George, it wouldn't occur to George to be buying shares in Northern songs without advising the others to do the same thing. Well, Paul says that he did advise John that he had done it, by the way. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, but the the other thing is, I'm not sure Paul McCartney in 1967 would have been buying, you know, the 0.1% extra shares. I mean, that that's a, that's a difficult one for me because I think Paul does do a lot for the greater good of the group. Um, you know, that's after Alan Klein comes in and John unilaterally signs with Klein. So that's a, that's a complicated one. But you know, I, I can see what you're saying, that maybe that reflects Paul's attitude. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm trying to actually to give Paul a little bit of a break and say, yes, he, he looks out for himself, but he's not trying to do it at anyone else's expense. He's just looking out for himself and assuming that other people are also doing the same. Whereas, yeah, George is, is, um, actively more concerned with uh, the, the the health of the whole, the family, as you say. Yeah, I think that John has internalized the Beatles as his family. You know, when Cynthia's like, it would be nice if we could go on <laughs> vacation without your friends. And he's like, what? Why would we do that? It's fun having your friends around. So, yeah. and so here we've got an example with George worried about all of their health, not just his own health. And I think that that, reflects that he's thinking about their well-being. I think George's love for the Beatles is deeply, deeply underestimated. In the Hunter bio, it starts off um, with saying that George doesn't enjoy being a Beatle. You open it and he's like, I don't really enjoy being a Beatle anymore. And then he talks about going on this vacation and not missing them. But then he said he was really happy to see them. And then Patty makes this comment that George doesn't miss anyone. But the takeaway is that that's how self-contained he is. But then later on, a few pages later in the bio, there's a discussion about him being very independent, but then it goes into this. And I'm just going to quote here. It says, George is still a Beatle. It's his job, as he says. And as with all jobs, everyone has to think about it now and again and of the future. He is still umbilically connected with the others, despite all the sitar exercises and high thoughts. The other Beatles are his greatest friends. As they share in his interest, he shares in all of their passions, however mundane, from long neckerchiefs to cameras. If one experiences something, the others all have to know about it, says Patty. Even if it's just a mood, they have to rush off and tell each other about it. They have crazes, just like you have crazes at school. When a craze hits the rest of them, the whole house has to be overturned until George gets what they've got. But it keeps them all happy. And then she says, I know now that they are all together. I didn't realize it when I first married. They all belong to each other. 
No one belongs to another person. It's no use trying to cling on. You would just become miserable. George is my husband, but he's got to be free to go with him when he wants. It's important for him to be free. George has a lot with the others that I can never know about. Nobody, not even the wives, can break through it or comprehend it. It did used to hurt me at first, and slowly I began to learn that there was a part that I could never be a part of. Cynthia talked to me about it. She said that they would always be a part of each other. So I thought that was interesting that like, even though up front he goes, I don't want to be a beetle. Later in this chapter, Hunter talks about how umbilically connected they are. So I think we need to separate his disgust at term beetle and his part of the family of the beetles. Yeah. It's like in that really early interview when he talks about there being two beetles there's his group of bandmates and closest friends and yes. allies, yes. his family. And then there's the Beatles that appear in the newspapers that are this separate entity. Yes. And it's there's the second that he's critical of and distancing himself from. It's that external view of what it is, like the performance element mm. of this is what you expect from a Beatle that I think mm. they all absolutely despise at this point. Even Paul doesn't yeah. want to be that you know mm-hmm. i quite and, agree and that it doesn't mean yeah. they don't want to stay the beatles or love their little group mm. no i agree with everything you just said you know and just as an aside george gives a an interview in 1978 in men only magazine where he, <laughs> <laughs> in a reputable magazine men only he um he opens up and talks about you know, how proud he is of the Beatles and how he'd be open to reuniting at that point. So sometimes I think, I think when George gets in a bad mood, he tends to lash out and say things. Yeah. But overall, I think he did see the Beatles as his family. Yeah, I'm reminded of that comment of Paul's that um, at various points throughout the 70s, they would call each other up and say, what do you think? Should we do it all again? And Paul gives the example of George having done that a couple of times. And you'd think if any Beatle was happy for that all to end and to be able to do music on their own terms, it would be George. So what do you think prompted George to want to go back to being a Beatle again? Well, that's a great point, because that suggests that there was something really meaningful and likable about the Beatles. And I suspect... I suspect this idea of let's do it all over again had everything to do with the family of the Beatles, the camaraderie, the magic of the music, um, the love between them. Mm, It's not for the fame. No. George doesn't, I believe George when he says he doesn't need to be more famous. I do think he likes elements of the success and power because he likes nice things. He likes women. He likes to Uh, to be treated deferentially. He does. He likes respect and he likes the influence of being able to, you know, highlight Ravi Shankar and take him around the world. Like that is all the good stuff that comes with um, power. I don't think he needs every move, you know, followed in the newspapers. He doesn't need that element of it. So the fact that he wants to do it again in the 70s, despite his protests, and this is the hard thing about George, is he seemed to be pissy to Paul publicly both John and George did that. They would complain bitterly about Paul publicly. 
And then there's always these other stories about how sweet they were to Paul behind doors. And even lesser known interviews like this one, Men's Only, where George says nice things about the Beatles or, or where John says lovely things about Paul. But it's not the stuff that stood out, you know, and that's remembered. Yeah, it must connect to this impulse that John and George in particular have to to try and take Paul down a peg or two in public estimation, even if they don't want that to change their private relationship with him. Well, and I think that is always seen as Paul's too arrogant. You know, he needs to be taken down a peg. I personally think it has much more to do with Paul's <laughs> success. Like, I, I think people forget that in the 70s, by the mid-70s, Paul is so successful. And these guys notice that kind of thing. It's a big deal. Paul seems like, and Paul did not communicate how hurt he was by the Beatles. So they think he's Teflon and he's back yeah. on top, you know? That's right. You look at um, the chart positions in the 1970s or album sales throughout. I mean, Paul has a very shaky start, but after that shaky start, he becomes like this Titanic yeah. from 1973 onwards. And you see the other Beatles like occasionally breasting the waves next <laughs> to this Titanic, but Paul is the Titanic. Right, right, right. And that impacts them. The larger point here is that George's commitment and love for the Beatles is always underestimated. And um, here he is in 1978 talking about the fact that he would consider getting back together with the Beatles. Um, the interviewer says, which of the ex-Beatles would most like the Beatles to reunite? And Harrison says, personally, I'm not opposed to the idea if it's done through mutual agreement. But the pressure seems to be bigger than any of us. And when they talk about sums like 50 or 60 million, it's almost a farce. I know Paul's book for the next few years, and John may have lost interest in the idea. Ringo and I are closest to it. We both feel it's not impossible, but it's highly unlikely, if only because of the legal and business maze that would have to be resolved before the four of us set foot on stage together. Yeah, I think you're right to say that his motivator is not fame. Yeah. It's probably not even financial, even for George Harrison. It's... No, because he specifically says when the, the, the amounts are high, that, yeah. makes, that ups the pressure. Mm. It's, it's wanting to be part of the magic and missing the Beatle family. George likes to be himself, and he bitterly regrets having abandoned his early habit of eating and, and sleeping on the stage. We should have stuck out for all that, he said, eating toast and chips and chickens. We only cut our hair and said all the yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir bit to get in. Oh, George. This is, <laughs> this is an example of me sometimes getting a little bit frustrated with him from time to time. I take his point. I, I know what he means. And yes, he does have a very strong sense of who he is and wants to be that person. I don't blame yeah, yeah, George yeah, yeah, for that. Yeah. But sometimes I think, George, maybe if your idea of who you were was a little less fixed, you might be receptive to growing as a human being. <laughs> a little less stubborn, a little more open to change. Not that George isn't open in other ways. Because, yeah. of course, he does discover new enthusiasms and gives himself over to them wholly. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it's that sort of unshiftable quality to him. 
the bloody minded quality to George that sometimes I shake my head a little bit at. Do you do that too? I do. I do. I mean, you know, it's just, he's got these two streaks, this romantic, fascinating, generous streak and this sort of unyielding side of him. Like I I have a hard time resolving that those two are concurrently running in George, you know? (laughs) And, And also I think, you know what, when, when you were eating chips and chickens and falling asleep on the stage, I bet the music you were making was not as good as the music <laughs> that you made when Brian cleaned up your act and injected a little professionalism into things. <laughs> and also, I bet if he was given the chance when he was eating chicken and chips on stage, if he could live in Friar Park or <laughs> you sure... <laughs> He would have said, yeah, I'll switch to a suit, you know? I think that George is in no way a people please. He, he's a personal pleaser, and he doesn't like it anytime when he has to do something that isn't exactly what he wants to do, you know? Yeah. But, you know, also, George did play the game really well. You know, as much as he talks about he hates to get into the suits. I mean, George loves fashion, as if George didn't want to get into a nice suit. Absolutely, but, yeah. yeah. And, like... Eating and falling asleep on stage suggests this completely disheveled uh, appearance where you don't give a shit what you look like. Whereas Mm -hmm. George might be critical of a kind of showbiz artificiality. But nobody is more fastidious about their appearance than George (laughs) Harrison. It's true. Although George George just loves fashion. It's just he likes to only do things his way. Yeah, that's right. He wants to control all elements of it. And yeah, maybe that's it. On him. Yeah, maybe that's you know. And George is rebellious of any kind of control. I mean, George is just like, as we'll see as we go on. Like George is just rebellious, and yeah. so you know, anybody who said don't do that, he's like, well, absolutely, we should have done that. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. He is also witty. George's critics would do well to remember that the memorable joke from A Hard Day's Night reporter at a cocktail party. What do you call that hairdo? George, Arthur, was not <laughs> written by a scriptwriter. It was George's own joke. He lives in Isha with oh, his Oh, okay, stop. Okay. I mean, <clears throat> that's the interesting thing about George is that you see almost moods flash through George, even watching Get Back, you know? Mm. As I said, I think he's got resting bitch face, so he looks like he's <laughs> concentrating and he looks kind of scowly. And then... He says something funny or somebody says something funny and then he transforms to somebody that's all smile and all radiant. It's, yeah. it's actually one of, the, one of the really endearing elements of George. You know, when he smiles, he looks very, very happy. Yeah. And he can be so intense. And then he makes mm. a joke and it sort of lightens everything up, you know? Yeah, that's right. When he, when he sings, attracts me like a pomegranate. There's just this sort of, he brims over with, with joy and uh, love for that particular moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, George is hilarious. But one thing I do note is that there is an element of the cutting. Hmm. You know how we said that George is always sitting there with a wry smile on his face in the press yeah. conferences? Yeah. There is always an element of that to George, too, in that he is sardonic and there is a little bit of a, a cutting in his humor. You know? Yeah, Which, that's right. 
I find that a little bit hard to reconcile sometimes with his more spiritual side. I assume he's good to be, you know, a non-judgmental and, and accepting of everybody. And he seems to be like that with some of his later friends, you know, some of the Wilburys, whereas yeah. with the Beatles, there seems to be a little bit of a more of a dig, especially with certain members. That's right. Yeah. Like the, Maureen Cleave has given that Arthur example from Hard Day's Night, but the, the Hard Day's Night example of that sardonic cutting with that I always remember. It's the same one that Rob Sheffield remembers because he wrote a whole essay about it. It's that moment where they're running around on the field to Can't Buy Me Love and this guy says, I suppose you realize this is private property. And they're, they're walking off and George just says, sorry, we hurt your field, mister. <laughs> <laughs> and why does that stick with you? I don't know, just because it, it somehow turns the tables on that guy who's, who's, you know, got all the dignity he can muster in that moment. Right. And George just punctures it perfectly with that line. Like, we haven't done any damage to your precious field, you idiot. Right, right, right. We're just having fun. And he makes yeah. him look ridiculous and exactly. childish. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I sometimes think, can you hear her running a little in the background? Bit, a little bit. Everybody who's listening, there is a puppy that is running nonstop in the background. She's just like 13 weeks old and does not sleep. Um, but I sometimes think that George is the bitchiest beetle. He is. He's the mean girl, isn't he? He is the mean girl. And like, it's so opposed to the view. Like every time I read George is above it, I'm always like, is he? It's no coincidence that the meanest of the mean girls had the name George, Regina <laughs> George. <laughs> I've got a word or two to say about the things that you do. You're telling He lives in Isha with his wife Patty in a large, white, sunny bungalow surrounded by a lawn and then by a high brick wall. He is a charming host, keen to show you everything. It was part of Queen Victoria's country pad, he said, with a grand sweep of the arm. And Clive of India had it for a bit. It's a national trust ball. You're not allowed to chop it up or anything. He added poetically that it glowed red in the setting sun. Nice bit of writing. I don't have much to say about it, but it's a nice bit of writing there. Yeah, it's interesting that George isn't rebellious about this being a part of Queen Victoria's country pad, but mm. but uh, yeah, he seems to have respect for architecture and historical things like that, you know. Yeah, I noticed there's a, I don't want to call it a double standard because it's okay to like some aspects of something and not others, <laughs> but uh, there's another instance later on in this where I find he, he venerates one long and deep tradition and then is incredibly disdainful about another one within like two sentences of each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the house is less lavish than the other beetle houses, but it has unusual touches, such as a little conservatory full of rare plants that mystify and intrigue George. He spends hours looking at them, worrying about the leaves going brown. He has a housekeeper called Margaret to Ferrari. Oh, 
Do you mind if we stop there? Because I guess I wanted to make the point that one of the things that I love, like I love this section because it gets into George's more romantic streak. Um, Mm. The idea of rare plants that mystify and intrigue George. Like this is where I feel like George gets out of his mind, gets out of his judgmentalism, his cynicism, and just falls in love with things. And plants are plants are something that he just seems to legitimately fall in love with you know later in life he calls himself a gardener you know yeah i i I agree although at the same time i feel like as much as he genuinely loves them it's also another source of anxiety for him because he worries (laughs) about the leaves going brown (laughs) it's like you know he's trying to get to this place where everything is perfect and you know if there's one leaf that has a little bit of brown on it it's like this little irritant to him um and i feel like there's a there's a there's a touch of that here he he is quite a perfectionist and he takes the same attitude to his music as well like 17 different versions of one guitar solo and yeah it's it's that kind of quality to him and danny tells the story about how george would stand on a balcony at friar park and stare out over the gardens with his eyes squinting in the dusk light and that this represented him enjoying his garden at the most because with that little light and with his eyes squinting he couldn't see any of the imperfections (laughs) you know what actually somebody pointed me to um enneagrams oh yeah it builds on what you're saying here george's personality type which is one um gets a bit obsessive compulsive Mm. and here's some of the things it says that um it is easy for you to work yourself up into a leather about the wrongdoings of others it may be sometimes true that they are wrong but what is it to you another one is it's important for you to get in touch with your feelings particularly your unconscious impulses your achilles heels is your self-righteous anger and by attempting to create their own brand of perfection, they often create their own personal hell. Hmm. Yeah, it's like the, <laughs> the ultimate goal for George is to be able to breathe a sigh of relief that everything is perfect. And until it gets to that point, there's this kind of, yeah, this, this constant irritant is present. It's like, you know, I bought this wonderful table, but now it's annoying me and I don't want it anymore. <laughs> two years ago i know exactly <laughs> and he talks about how he wants to get the whole house pleasing but one gets the sense that the minute he does he's going to have to continually do it you know yeah that's right it's it's so different to john's profile where everything in this house is like toys that are there for his entertainment right, um, right. and and they're, they're stimulants of one kind or another <laughs> Whereas with George, it's almost like the opposite. He, he wants this, he wants everything to be arranged just so, so that he can feel calm. <laughs> <laughs> For that one minute yeah. before something annoys him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you know what? Since we touched upon George's perfectionism, which is very connected to George's Enneagram profile, why don't we take a little bit more of a detour into Enneagrams? Uh, because they are interesting. Mm. Obviously, they're just a tool, especially when dealing with a man who is as deeply complex as George Harrison. Yeah. But they're fun and they basically provide some consistent qualities in certain personality types. And the more we talk about this, the more I find that there might be something worth exploring here. So let's look at George's profile. Mm. 
But now George's profile, apparently, it is a number one with a wing nine. So there's apparently a main number and then a wing number. And the wing number influences the main number. So for example, the nine is everything about the one softer. Mm. So let me just read to you what one is. They're very idealistic, principled, purposeful, self-controlled. They are also um, perfectionists and obsessive-compulsive. They have a sense of mission that leads them to want to improve the world. And they can see the best of the human spirit and they want to make a difference. And um, they feel a calling. And personally, I think this is where John and George are much more similar, you know? I mean, John and Paul have this incredible chemistry. But John and George seem to have, in some ways, a real rapport. And I think it's the, in this idealism. And it says that their basic fear is being corrupt or defective. And their desire is to be good and have integrity and balance. At their very best, they are extraordinarily wise and discerning. They have strong personal convictions, an intense sense of right and wrong on a good day. Um, they are less extreme about their ideals and expectations, which in turn makes them more generous and often, well, kind of mystical. And, you know, <laughs> that sounded like George. When they're less evolved or on a bad day, they are dissatisfied with reality. They become very high-minded idealists, you know, think through how things ought to be. They're afraid of making mistakes and can become very emotionally constricted. And they can also be highly critical of both themselves and others picky and judgmental and perfectionist. They have opinions about everything and they're impatient and, and angry. At the worst, they're self-righteous, intolerant, inflexible, judgmental, severe. They can become obsessive about imperfection and wrongdoings of others, and they can become depressed or obsessive compulsive. And again, on this website, they talked about the spectrum and they said on the less healthy spectrum, their wish for quiet and solitude can turn them into misanthropic pessimists who flee into isolation because they become so disillusioned with the world, giving up more and more on their emotional side while they become unable to see the logical contradictions in their own behavior. One additional thing that they said, which I found interesting, is they said something that happens regularly with ones who have the nine wing is they withdraw into nature. Sometimes they simply prefer the company of animals or solitude over interaction with humans. They escape to nature just to try and break from the messiness of the world they can't shape the way they would like to. So we get the mystic, we get the misanthrope, and we get the gardener. At the very best of time, they're excessively wise and conscientious, and at the very worst, they can be hypocritical and highly judgmental. Yeah, I think that rings a couple of bells. Um, yeah, it was interesting hearing you talk. I had a few thoughts um, when you started talking about how he and John are aligned in their idealism. I quite agree. That is a real point of connection between them. And you can see that's what unites them in yeah. India, amongst other things. Um, but I see a difference in their personalities in the way they approach that idealism. I think yep. for, for John... 
idealism is great so long as he can be at the center of it, get credit for it. <laughs> That's right. um, I think George's idealism is in some ways a little more selfless. He just wants the good thing to happen. And it's in a way, the ultimate ideal is if he is removed from the final product of it. I, I see it that that playing out a lot in what he wants, like wanting to be inside of Ravi Sitar. It's like this will to self-disillusion, like yeah, achieving yeah. enlightenment and then disappearing is his ultimate goal. So I always see his version of idealism being one in which he ultimately gets removed from the achievement of the ideal. Whereas John wants to be there when the ideal is. Yeah. And, and he wants the ideal to be conditional on him being there. <laughs> right, um, right, right. With John, there's the sense of ego at the center. And John is not this number, according to Enneagrams. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I agree with that. There is this more beautiful reality that they both strive to, but George almost wants to bring others to that. Like the reformers this has the sense of mission that leads them to want to improve the world in various ways versus it being about them, you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I could certainly see some of what you're, you were saying about this person on a bad day and this person on their worst days <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. being potentially relevant as well. I was thinking about the argument. That's not really an argument in um, the get back sessions, the famous one. I'll play yeah, yeah. whatever you want you to play or I won't play at all if you don't want. And it just, it occurred to me that in that situation, George is probably feeling flustered because he's not living up to his own that's right. Idea of what he should be playing. I mean, he, he wants Paul to like what he's doing. Yep. And if Paul doesn't like it, then it's not just Paul in, in George's mind. It's not just Paul being an asshole and overbearing and dictatorial. There's some part of George that thinks I mustn't be playing well. And he's, that's what's kind of flustering him in that moment. And so, you know, he, he does react in a slightly sort of bitchy or, um, or passive aggressive way, but it's because you know, pressure is being placed on him when he's already struggling. And so he's defensive as a result. Well, and I think that's a really important point. He is a perfectionist. And when he feels like he's failing, he gets hurt. And then that comes mm. out as bitchiness or anger. Like, I think he's super sensitive to criticism because he's so critical of himself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to find generally in life that the, pe the people who, who tend to be um, the most aggressive and defensive uh, yeah. are the most kind of brittle and fragile people. Yeah. You know, the, the more self-assured you are, the, the less you have the need to be so reactive. That's right. The more confident you are, the more generous, like you won't take it seriously. It's his own internal pressure that's yeah. making him brittle. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the problem might be that Paul, you know, George later said that Paul was on a hot streak and wasn't particularly sensitive to other people's egos at this time. I'm a little split on this because sometimes Paul seems very sensitive and sometimes when he's in flow, he doesn't seem to be. Like in that environment where he's creating and in flow, he's just like, I don't like that. Could you do it a different way? And he probably does not think he's hurting George yeah. is feeling because for him, if somebody said do it a different way, he might just be like, okay, yeah, what about this? Whereas, you know, when Paul is criticized, you know, by the critics, he can apparently be quite thin skinned. 
Mm. I just think that there's a difference when they're in the moment, because I think one of the reasons Paul's not sensitive to others in the moment is because, you know, people are usually empathetic to things that happen to them and, or that they experience. And the fact that Paul's not particularly sensitive makes me think that it's not one of his problems. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if this is linked to comments that Paul occasionally makes about how music is essentially play. I mean, people will talk about why are you having, why are you working so hard at your age and you surely can't. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he makes, he continuously makes the point that for him, it's fun, it's play. And I think that to me suggests for him, to, to be in a creative space is to be in in a free and playing space. It's a great um, point. I don't know that it is so much for George, or at least in not quite the same way. He seems to approach it more methodically with, with greater precision, um, like, he's, like he's an architect rather than a child at play. That yes, seems yes, to yes. be a, a signal difference between them. Yeah, and again, it goes back to maybe this perfectionism. That would make the whole endeavor much more high stakes. If you're like, if I don't do this perfectly, if I get criticized, it's a failure. Not that I think that George is that intense all the time. I mean, mm. they have a lot of fun together, but he is definitely sensitive. And even John commented on how George would do multiple takes of his solos to get it just right. Yeah. So, you know, that's just George. He's, he's probably hard on himself. He's got a very high bar. Now, the upside of this is that we end up with some really exquisite work. Mm. You know, that is the benefit to George's perfectionism is he creates these beautiful, beautiful lines that are right for the piece. And they're not necessarily showy. Yeah. He's very thoughtful in his approach, but it probably made the experience a little more stressful for him and for them. Yeah. So anyway, as I said, George's wing number was a number nine. So I'll just highlight some of the characteristics of number nine, some of the ones that pertain most to George. At their best, they can have great equanimity and they can be content. They're deeply receptive, emotionally stable and serene. They're good natured, have a healing and calming influence. They're harmonizing, bringing people together. Mm. On a lesser day or, you know, when they're less evolved, they fear conflict, they become self-effacing and accommodating, they idealize others, they go along with their wishes, saying yes to things they don't really want to do. And they also can disengage, walking away from problems, sweeping things under the rug. And if nothing can be done to change anything, they get really frustrated and angry and they can disassociate themselves from conflicts, wanting to block out awareness from anything that could affect them. Yeah. So I see some elements of George in this as well. Hmm. I can see elements of John in some of that too. Maybe I'm, oh, definitely. I'm trying to read it that way because it would be appropriate because it's number nine. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah the, the disassociation um, is something that's been leveled against him in the past. That sort of strangely blank stare that he can have sometimes. Maybe that's the effect of heroin uh, well, that, it's, you know, it's a mental thing, but it is heroin or it, that's just a coping mechanism. Hmm. But there are certain things in here, this idea of being emotionally stable, like she talked about, and having healing and calming influence, harmonizing groups and being self-effacing. Hmm. I just thought that was interesting. Somebody wrote to me repeatedly saying, please do an episode about Enneagrams. They can be so um, helpful in understanding people's personalities. I think the problem is, is they're helpful for understanding 
certain elements of them. Yeah, I think generally it's a bit like star sign descriptions or any way of ordering personalities into type. They're often so general that you can squeeze yourself into any of those boxes if you try hard. At the most innocuous level, they are at least a tool to reflect on the contents of your personality. So they have value. Yeah. When I look at both of these numbers, you can see certain elements of George. You know, the idea of George being this idealist helps me understand George to a certain extent. But then it made me think something that we talked about was this romantic side of George that exists separate from this. It's like the romantic, playful side of George is not necessarily captured in either one of these. Mm. And, And that's I think what makes George uh, compelling is the fact that he's he can be so witty and funny and playful, which is really opposed to these, you know? And that balances George. Yeah, I quite agree. One of the things that it says in these Enneagrams about what you should do if you're type one, for example, mm-hmm. is learn to relax. Do not work yourself into a lather about the wrongdoings of others. Mm. And then it says, similarly, be aware of your constant irritation with your own shortcomings. Mm. Does your own harsh self-criticism really help you to improve or does it simply make you tense, nervous, and self-doubting? Learn to recognize the attacks on your super ego and how they undermine you rather than help you. And that's what we were just talking about. Like that's, that's for me, an important insight to George. So that when he's doing take after take, it's because it's not the perfection that he was looking for and that he's got that voice in his head, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, I quite agree. People think of Paul as the um, bossy perfectionist, but I, I just think he has a pretty clear idea of what he wants to achieve. George's perfectionism is, is more in search of that idea, and he will try f- 400 different ways of doing a song if he needs to. And if he still doesn't feel as though it's gotten to that point, he'll try another 400 different ways. Yeah. Well, and and that's admirable. But I think that part of the reason why he has to do 400 different ways is because he's got a pretty harsh inner critic. I'm not sure Paul does when he is performing or writing or, you know, maybe outside of that he does. But I think in that space, he doesn't have that. No, he's he's more content to accept that you you're you're trying to bottle lightning when you're making a great recording, and sometimes it happens, and that's great. Print it, done. And sometimes it doesn't. So when it doesn't, we leave it alone, and we'll try it again later. Whereas George will keep sort of picking at it yeah, and trying to yeah. force it to work. Yeah. Well, one of the downsides of the number one is they're obsessive compulsive. Mm. And I think you see that with George. It's like this idea of I'm going to push through until I get there. And it's something I can certainly relate to is that's, that's how I tend to be is like, I get trapped in the loop of I'm going to get it. It's very painful and you can just spin and spin. And I always look at Paul McCartney saying that he just kind of pulls the plug when things aren't working so that it doesn't not become fun. And I'm like, that's, so amazing. Like, I wish I could do that. And does he really do that? You know? Well, yeah. I mean, he never released the Return to Pepperland album. And that's just one thing that we know about. I'd say there'd be other examples in his um, 50 plus years of creativity. And certainly John doesn't sweat the technicalities. Mm. Um, George actually does seem to 
sweat the the intricacies of the playing in the ways that the other, you know, Paul and John are a little bit more content to just work on instinct mm. and feel. And I think maybe more open to um, felicitous things that might occur by accident. Um, like they believe my, in magic a little bit yeah, more, they do. I think, actually. They do. Okay, so to continue down this list, it says that um, what you should do is get in touch with your feelings, particularly your unconscious impulses. You may find that you're uneasy with your emotions and your sexual and aggressive impulses. In short, with the messy human things that make us human. Mm. And again, it's this kind of ideal yeah. that he probably holds himself to. And I get the sense, like when, when reading about how he behaved with Patty, when things weren't perfect between them, he just sort of disassociated a little bit, um, stopped trying so hard and, and disconnected from his feelings. Mm. Like I get the sense with George sometimes that he's disconnected from his feelings. Yes, I do too. Um, you know, that line from John's song, I don't want to face it, where he yeah. sings, um, say you're looking for peace and love. Um, you want to save humanity, but it's people that you just can't stand. I sometimes think of, John, when the, he might be singing about himself, but sometimes I think that applies to George too, doesn't it? Because humanity is the ideal, but yeah. people are the reality. And they always fall short. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And well, in that one, I, I, with John, I get the sense that John, he gets angry and deflects first, and then he mm. does face his issues, and then he deflects again. Whereas I, I feel like George might just avoid anything that is uncomfortable where he feels like he might be falling or people that he knows might be falling um, below an ideal. I, you know, I just get the sense that he can, especially reading about Patty, you know, her book paints a picture of how hard it would have been to be with George because she absolutely loves him. And I think later on, he, he admits that he absolutely loved her, but he, he just started to block her. Yeah. For whatever reason. You know, and it's unfortunate. Can you can you recall an instance of George admitting that he was wrong about something? I can't off the top of my head. I don't mean to suggest that it doesn't exist, but I just can't think of one. No, I can't. I can't. Like, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but what I've noticed is he's not particularly empathetic. You know, whereas, for example, in the nineteen seventy one interview with Life magazine, Paul presents his perspective, because you can tell his audience is probably the other Beatles. This is after the, the court case. And he says, mm. well, this is why I had to, but I understand from their perspective. And, you know, and it doesn't particularly play well in that magazine because it becomes very great when he's like, this is my perspective, but I understand that perspective too. But I haven't really seen George talk about like, I really understand now what Paul was going through and I'm sorry I did that. So no, yeah. I haven't heard him say that or even admit his part in it. That's right. His, his stories about fault are invariably, at least the ones I've read, other people's faults. <laughs> <laughs> even with the interview in 1978, when he's talking about how he lost some of his prized possessions, including Patty, he just said that it took him a long time to admit it. He couldn't talk about it. And then he says, but, you know, now I'm just equally as happy. So it all worked out. You know, I have just as much love right now. And it, it probably would have meant a lot to her. 
to have said he was sorry that, you know, that things didn't work out. That was as close as he got to, to admitting. Yeah, I might just preface or prefix that by saying, I think when George is being preachy in song, a lot of the time he's being self-admonishing. So it's not really saying sorry, but it is a way of admitting faults and you know flagellating himself before god that's his version of of being sorry or acknowledging that he did the wrong thing perhaps yeah yeah and then the final thing on this to-do list for number one is get your anger in check it's hurting you i looked at some of the quotes on george and there's the ringo star quote that george had two incredible separate personalities he had the love bag of beads personality and he had the bag of anger and um, Ravi Shankar said he also has his black moves, as we all do, and God help anyone who at the time incites his wrath. So obviously with George, there is this streak of anger, which to me is always inconsistent with the spiritual halo. But that may have to do with the pressure he puts on himself and others. Yeah, from the like with the argument with Paul putting a lot of pressure on himself, feeling outward pressure, failing to live up to it, getting kind of flustered and defensive as a result and that coming across in a kind of angry way. Yeah. But also, I think you're right that George wants to please Paul. That's also something that is never acknowledged. I think George really wants Paul to be happy with everything he does and he gets very hurt when Paul's critical or says, no, don't do that. That's right. And people often drag that line out of, of George's, whatever it is that will please you, I'll do it um, and, and say it's either passive aggressive or it's evidence of Paul being overbearing or bossy. Yeah. But I think it also speaks to the fact that George does genuinely want to please Paul. That's right. And I personally think that's part of the wound with Paul is Paul not acknowledging him. And I think underneath that is George knows what an incredible musician Paul is. And so he wants Paul's praise. Yeah, there's that comment made in the 70s where he says, I think Paul is a fine bass player. Fine. He repeats it. And it could sound damning with faint praise, like the word fine. I think he means it in a kind of older English sense of fine being one of the highest compliments that you can actually pay. It means, you know, incredibly well achieved Mm. in that in that sort of perfectionist way that's what the word fine really means a fine piece of work yeah you know in this mentally magazine he does refer to paul's talent in an offhanded way i mean it's low-key but he suggests he has an innate talent he says Mm. from the start i knew paul had a knack for composing tunes and words to go with them Nothing great, mind you, but at the time I knew that he, more than I, could go far in the music world if he really applied himself. Thing is, we were both just beginning to see the world and our ambitions were somewhat blurry. There was the distraction of girls and applying ourselves to our work, as it were, was an unknown quantity. And so I think that's interesting is that he compliments Paul right there. Paul had a knack for composing tunes and words to go with them. Nothing great, mind you, at the time, but I knew he more than I could go far in the music world if he really applied himself. So the fact that he says that, you know, like that is part of 
George's belief system. He knew from a young age Paul was talented. Yeah, there's that bit in his David Wig interview where he's talking about Paul's songs on Abbey Road and he acknowledges Paul's ability to pluck melodies out of thin air and says, I don't know where he gets them from. And yeah. there's, there's such admiration in that. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of um, envy, but there is also, it's just overwhelmingly admiring of this other person's talent. Yeah, yeah. I, di I didn't necessarily take him to be envious. It was just admiring. And it was kind of like an otherworldly thing that he didn't really know where it came from. It was very sweet comment. Yeah. And remember in Get Back, where Paul jumps on a piano when they start playing For You Blue. Yeah. And, or is it Old Brown Shoe? I think it's Old it's Brown old, Shoe. It's Old Brown Shoe. And George gets really happy. Like Paul is into it. And so I think that George and John have a lot of personality overlap. And, you know, the, the concert for Bangladesh, George credits John for being an inspiration for that. And so there's a lot of overlap there. But what I did notice in Get Back is how invested George was in Paul stuff, like in Long and Winding Road, where he's like, well, you know, we're doing a bunch of the same stuff and maybe we should do something different. He's engaged hmm. That's in the production. Really true. Yeah, that's very true. And he, he's, he's full of ideas about he's what He's full they, of ideas. They, he's not just dismissing things in that surly way. He's the one saying, you know, we should do every little thing from Beatles to yes. Sale. Yes. And you know what? And he's speaking primarily to Paul when he's like, we should love each other's songs. Like he turns around and talks to John too, but he's facing Paul and he's so open and sweet in that conversation. There wasn't the defensiveness. There wasn't the cynicism. You know? Yeah, that's, that's quite true. George is actually quite open a lot of the time. Yeah, he, he doesn't play games really for all of the accusations of being passive aggressive or, or what have you. I think he's being pretty genuine almost all of the time, don't you? I do. That's why that number nine uh, Enneagram also resonated with me with my impression of George, because there are times when he is very easygoing. He seems to be open. You know, I've said multiple times, I think he has resting bitch concentration face and yeah. just a scowly look like that is just his resting face. And I also think that he gets hurt. I rarely hear that in the Beatles world. They sort of see George as this like above it all. I never see any of the Beatles as above it all. And George gets hurt. And I think sometimes he doesn't know how to deal with that. So he gets defensive and scowls and gets quiet and that kind of thing. Yeah, you can see it in his physical posture as well. Yes. And the way, yes. the, the, place, the way he chooses to put himself. Um, all through Get Back, he's, he's sort of more in a corner. Or when you see him on camera, he has this slightly hunched, hunched, hunched posture, yes. like he's protecting his vital organs. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's that's a bit of insecurity, you know, and yeah. self-protectiveness. And then it's really revealing that on the roof, he doesn't assume his central position, but he's off to one side and he doesn't even face the people. He's he's standing facing the other two Beatles the entire time. So anyone who could see him, I could only see him in profile. It's another instance of that, I think. That's right. I don't know if Cleve sees the soft side of George. No, she tends to, she, she admires elements of him and she's careful to point out that he's not 
slight or untalented or yeah. unthinking. She, you know, she draws attention to his impressive qualities, but there's a kind of hardness to the things she draws attention to that doesn't recognize a softer side to George. Right. She does see that the sort of romantic streak. I think what she doesn't see in George is the insecurity, the sensitivity. And when I see that, then I become less judgmental of George. Because I can sometimes forgive John for being harsh because I think John gets um, hurt and lashes out. And, yeah. you know, George could be doing the same. Yeah, it, it could be George at his most human. <laughs> yeah. As we're talking this through, it's interesting to me because I'm becoming softer and softer about George because, you know, the way that Cleve talks about George, it's very much like he has a good sense of self and he is very self-protective and he knows his rights and it makes George seem unemotional. Like he knows what's right and wrong. And I do think that George operates at that level sometimes. But I think underneath that, I mean, he's a beautiful musician that's capable of exquisite melodies and music. So there's a very, very sensitive soul in there. So all of the things that we're saying, the sometimes aggression, sometimes the scowliness, the sometimes hunched, is not that I think I'm above you, I don't like you. It's He's just going into this kind of... Um, protective, protective yeah. you know, ball of, you know, porcupine, whatever you, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then when he gets out of it, it's like, we talked about like when he embraces something like Ravi's music or anything that he loves, when he forgets about the internal monologue and just becomes in the moment, this shining light comes out of George you know, and then he becomes radiant. And that's why it's always like, oh, oh, look at that beautiful soul that just came out, you know? Yeah, that's right. It's when John and George smile, they do it in such an unguarded and, and glowing, radiant way, don't they? They do. Like on the cover of, of the original Let It Be, George's smile is just like the thing that your eye is drawn to of anything on that cover. Yeah. I know he yeah, got his teeth huge. sort of fixed for, on that um on well, that the was a good idea <laughs> <laughs> i do not criticize that that was a good idea um yeah because he's got such a big toothy smile but it is a joyful smile but that's when i understand like that george cares a lot that george wants to impress that he wants approval that he wants to be part of the Lennon-McCartney thing. You know, Patty makes this point that sometimes uh, George would admit to her that he felt outside of Lennon-McCartney. And he talks about this in the 70s. You know, he admits at that point that I wasn't one of the grooves. I wasn't Lennon-McCartney. And that had to have been very hurtful. Sure. I was thinking about the fact that after the Beatles break up, like John and Paul don't want to do the Beatles and they don't consider it the Beatles if each other aren't in it. You know, John plays with Ringo and George. It's not the Beatles. And when John quits and says that he wants the divorce, Paul, Paul stupidly says, we could have continued if like Ringo or George left, but not with John. Like the, the other two are so obsessed with each other and they do have a chemistry. Paul and John just had a creative energy that was different, you know? Yeah. 
And I can see that for George, it's not as though he he tries to insert himself into the Lennon-McCartney diet. I think he he understands and respects the specialness of it. Yep. And at the same time, it's unfortunate and sad and frustrating that he isn't part of it. It's both of these things. Yes, yes. You know, in again, this 19th, I, I encourage everybody to read the Men's Only magazine because it's one of the most um, revealing interviews that he does. The interviewer, Haddad, says... Did you ever imagine the two of you would be separated by the musical interest that first brought you together? And George says, I could never have imagined it. And then the interviewer says, then your musical ambitions didn't really begin to take form until the two of you joined John Lennon. And George says, Paul and John were the spark that ignited the Beatles. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No. She's so annoying. She's really annoying at this stage because she's so fast. And as she spends a whole day trying to get my attention, like I can't catch her. Okay. Paul and John were the spark that ignited the beat. Do you want me to say it? (laughs) (laughs) Paul and John were the spark that ignited the Beatles. Yeah. Paul and John were the spark that ignited the Beatles. Of course, we weren't the Beatles then and we didn't have Ringo. But that was the start. The air was filled with excitement. And even though we went through the silly names like the Quarrymen Skiffle Group, the Moondogs, the Moonshiners, and the Silver Beetles, before evolving into the group everyone grew to know and love, the Crucible was in 1957 when John and Paul became a duo. This is actually an extraordinary statement. George does not say the Beatles were John Lennon's band that he and Paul joined. He says that Paul and John were the spark that ignited the Beatles. Mm. Even the word spark reflects the chemistry that John and Paul had. George acknowledges that. He knows it's true. And then he says the crucible was when they became a duo. So he's talking about the formation of the Beatles here. And at the core of the Beatles was the duo of Lennon and McCartney. And again, he's telling us this. He's not begrudging them this. He's saying that this is the way it was. Yeah. But at the same time, he is also in this band. He's saying he was right there with them. So he's both outside the duo, but inside the Beatles. You know, so I I can imagine that that would be just something that he would be used to, as well as something that eventually got very hard. Yeah. I, I feel like sometimes George... Um, makes these comments about, you know, the Lennon-McCartney being the spark or the crucible. It's almost a a way of saying, I don't pose any threat to that, guys. I'm not trying to muscle my way in on it. So you don't need to be paranoid about my presence. It's like when he sings, I'm not trying to upset the apple cart. I only want what I can get. He's saying it would be magnanimous and it would be easy of you to acknowledge my contributions and my presence a little bit more because I can respect what you do as something separate and I'm not threatening it. I agree. It's like I respect it. I just need you to acknowledge me and see me too. Yeah.
He has a housekeeper called Margaret, two, a Ferrari, two minis, 48 so far unread <laughs> leather-bound volumes on natural history and French. George, do you buy your books by the weight? <laughs> a Sidney Nolan print that he loves. Yay, an Australian artist. Excellent. Um, and a music room with tape recorders, a little jukebox and walls covered in guitars. He wears a watch that is the last word in watches. It is elliptical in shape. And it came in a white gold, and it came in white gold at vast expense from Cartier. The point of it to George is a sophisticated one. It looks a toy watch, or one of Salvador Dali's soft watches. He said, flowing all over the place. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that he's not buying. It, it would be easy to be critical of George and say. On the one hand, he's really spiritual and he'll say right, things right. like it's all Maya. And on the other hand, he's deeply materialistic. But yeah. he's not interested in the watch purely as a status symbol. Exactly. For him, it represents a kind of a version of beauty or perfection, like we were just talking about. Yeah, that's what I find enchanting about this section is that I get the sense that George really enjoys these things. Yeah. He's probably very conflicted because obviously he loves things of beauty. He's he eventually buys Friar Park, his Ferraris. I, I think he legitimately loves things of beauty and appreciates design based on yeah. There in his approach to music, it's there in his love of um, Formula One racing too. You wouldn't think that's necessarily an extension of this, but it's about a kind of drive towards perfection yeah. and incredibly honed skill and craftsmanship and that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Hmm. Although he does make it kind of as, as genuine as his love for this watch is, he describes it in a way that makes it sound less appealing. He does. Flowing all over the place. <laughs> well, he makes the point that he is not a poet. And he, yeah, every yeah. once in a Beautiful while. Beautiful words, George. Beautiful words. <laughs> <laughs> And that concludes part one of our discussion of Maureen Cleave's profile on George Harrison. We will be back with part two in the next week, so please stay tuned. And I will now leave you with Duncan Driver reading Cleave's full profile of George Harrison. This is the truth about me. George tells everything, but everything, about himself and Patty to Maureen Cleave, Teen Life magazine, December 1966 issue. 
It is hard to understand why a delightful and original human being such as George Harrison should have left so much fainter an impression on the general public than the three other Beatles. But this, alas, is unaccountably so. George is 23, the youngest and the least well-known. He has not the aggressive self-assertion of John Lennon, nor the pretty innocence and wicked wit of Paul McCartney, nor the extraordinary visual appeal of Ringo. He writes few songs and sings little. He stands in the middle with a vacant smile upon his lips, gazing at the floor and strumming vaguely on his guitar. But there's nothing vague about George. He's alert to everything surrounding him. Good old George is how he used to describe himself. Good old average George, plodding along, a mere morsel. He is the only Beatle with two surviving parents still married to each other. And there is indeed something stable and solid about George. A lot of people like him best because they think wrongly that nobody else does. They feel he has been overlooked. Indeed, one comes across people who suppose that George is stupid and dull. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is strong-willed and uncompromising character with a strict regard for what he considers to be the truth and an even stricter regard for his own rights. I asked to be successful, he said, but I never asked to be famous. I can tell you I got more famous than I wanted to be. I never intended to be the big cheese. There then followed a typical piece of Harrison logic. People keep saying, we made you what you are. Well, I made Mr. Woolworth what he is, and I don't go crawling around over his gates and smashing up the way all around his house. I can't understand some of them being so aggressively bad-mannered. I suppose they feel belittled wanting something from four scruffy louts like us. He likes his views to be known. I want you to be sure and get this bit in my article, he kept saying when I went to see him. He is well informed and thinks more independently than the others. The other Beatles often think he is out on some kind of a limb, but though they laugh at him, they often end up doing the same thing themselves. He was the first to buy his own house, the first to move out of London to the Weybridge area, and the first to become interested in Indian music. He has a poor opinion of television and does not watch television during all its waking hours. He thinks Rolls Royces look dreadful. He is the only one with a practical knowledge of how things work. He can plug in an amplifier without electrocuting himself, and he can drive his Ferrari and arrive at his destination. In some sense, George is the strongest individual of them all. His way of life is different. He likes to rise at 10.30, which to the average beetle is the equivalent of the small hours. He now... Uh, <clears throat> sorry. He has now got hold of the revolutionary idea that the Beatles should take exercise. Just swimming, he said hastily, not exercise you'd notice. I want us all to be healthy in that, not going to clubs. George likes to be himself, and he bitterly regrets having abandoned his early habit of eating and sleeping on the stage. We should have stuck out for all that, he said, eating toast and chips and chickens. We only cut our hair and said all the yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir bit to get in. <clears throat> he is also witty. George's critics would do well to remember that the memorable joke from A Hard Day's Night, reporter at a cocktail party, what do you call that hairdo? George, Arthur, was not written by a scriptwriter, it was George's own joke. He lives in Isha with his wife Patty in a large white sunny bungalow surrounded by a lawn and then by a high brick wall. He is a charming host, keen to show you everything. It was part of Queen Victoria's country, Pat, he said with a grand sweep of the arm. And Clive of India had it for a bit. It's a national trust wall. You're not allowed to chop it up or anything. 
he added poetically that it glowed red in the setting sun. The house is less lavish than the other Beatles' houses, but it has unusual touches, such as a little conservatory full of rare plants that mystify and intrigue George. He spends hours looking at them, worrying about the leaves going brown. He has a housekeeper called Margaret, a Ferrari, two minis, 48 so far unread leather-bound volumes on natural history in French, <laughs> a Sidney Nolan print that he loves, and a music room with tape recorders, a little jukebox and walls covered in guitars. He wears a watch that is the last word in watches. It is elliptical in shape and came in white gold at vast expense from Cartier. The point of it to George is a sophisticated one. It looks like a toy watch, or one of Salvadali's soft watches, he said, flowing all over the place. His acquaintances are as decorative as himself. George and Patty showing their young, long-haired, slender <laughs> friends around the strange pink plants in the conservatory is a happy sight of what would be period charm if it were not for the trouser suits. I want to get the house so that every little bit is pleasing, he said enthusiastically. This, he patted the modern dining room table. This was me two years ago, it'll have to go. The natural thing when you get money is that you acquire taste. I've got a lot of my taste off patty. You get taste in food as well. Instead of eggs and beans and steak, you branch out into the avocado scene. I never dreamt I would like avocado pears. I thought it was like eating bits of wax, fake pears out of a bowl when I saw people shoveling it down. Now he shoves it down like the rest. He is hospitable, charming, and good company. It is his enthusiasm that is so engaging. You see why they all like George. He is proud of his house, proud of his wife. He and Patty have a very decided sense of style, both about their looks and about their surroundings. In this setting, George cut a curiously elegant dash often in black velvet with his long, thin legs, his cavernous cheeks and his wild head of hair. It was George who got married in a coat of Mongolian lamb, and after the ceremony, they both came home and burnt incense. They are a modish and decorative pair. Patty is deliciously pretty, skinny and dainty with long yellow hair. She is 22, a successful model, and runs her house most capably. There seems to be an inexhaustible supply of pretty boyed girls. Her sister Jenny is a model, and her younger sister Paula is the girl too much in love to eat her shredded wheat. They give every appearance of getting on extremely well together. Patty is not only beautiful, she is also a capable and excellent cook. Tuck in, George said in front of one of Patty's dinners. George met Patty two years ago while making a hard day's night. She had other boyfriends. Never thought I'd get her, George said. This is her background, according to him. She was born in Taunton, went to East Africa to live, and came back. I married her, he said, because I loved her and because I was fed up not being married. 22 is the normal age for people to get married. That's when a petrol pump attendant gets married, though he hasn't got all these people looking at him. The great thing about getting married, you see, is that everything's different. Before I used to think, there's Patty cooking my dinner in my pots and pans. Now they're her pots and pans, and this house is a home. We're a match for each other, he went on. People should know everything about each other before they get married. I'd like you to put that in my article. Not almost everything, but really everything. You must spill it out and get it off your chest, like going to the psychiatrist. That's the great thing about a wife, you see. She's your best friend. Running through this uncompromising character is a strong romantic streak. 
He feels romantic about his wife and he feels romantic about his music. He says that this is religion and he worries a great deal about it. He wishes he could write fine songs as Lennon and McCartney do, but he has difficulty with the words. Paddy keeps asking me to write more beautiful words, he said. He played his newest composition. His own voice came over the tape singing, Love me while you can, before I'm a dead old man. <laughs> <laughs> so blunt. Oh, dear. George was aware that these words were not beautiful. <laughs> he has been given Roget's thesaurus to help. I wanted another word for thick, he said. He looked it up and was thrilled <laughs> with a list of synonyms. You have heard the one he used on the LP. Although your mind's opaque, try thinking more, if just for your own sake. He plays the guitar for hours on end, taking it up during conversation like a piece of knitting. When it isn't a guitar, it's the sitar. For George, the instrument of Indian classical music has given new meaning to life. He went to hear Ravi Shankar play in the festival hall. I couldn't believe it, he said. It was just like everything you've ever thought of as great, all coming out at once. He went to India Craft and bought some sitars, several sitars. Never one to do things by halves, he decided to look exactly as Ravi Shankar did on the album cover. He sat on carpets and twisted his legs round like Ravi did in the picture. His legs went to sleep and when he stood up he fell over. I wish I could sit on the floor like Ravi, he said earnestly. The instrument is complicated and George's enthusiasm, while it does not increase understanding, is infectious. He insists you count with him the 16 beats in certain passages. He twists his mouth about to sing with the old Indian lady on the record. He has considered going to India for six years to play it properly, but he thinks he would miss his friends. Just before I went to sleep one night, I thought what it would be like to be inside Ravi's sitar. But there is a practical side to George, a side that admits no mysteries, no contradictions in life. He is firm where he believes himself to be right, which is most of the time. Take the war in Vietnam. I think about it every day, he said, and it's wrong. Anything to do with war is wrong. They're all wrapped up in their Nelsons and their Churchills and their Montes, always talking about war heroes. Look at all our yesterdays, how we killed a few more Huns here or there. It makes me sick. They're all the sort of a leaning on their walking sticks and telling us a few years in the army would do us good. The others tease him about his interest in money. If you want to know how much money I've got, Paul asks, ask George. He does take a minute interest in what happens to their money, and at the moment is particularly incensed about income tax. He is conceivably the first composer to write a song on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> his views are disconcertingly simple. He thinks that his, George's personal taxes, are going directly to pay for F-111s. I'm, I'm not sure if I've said that right. Um, he sees Mr. Wilson, the Prime Minister of England, as the Sheriff of Nottingham. There he goes, George said bitterly, taking all the money and then moaning about deficits here, deficits there, always moaning about deficits. In fact, he approves of nobody in authority, religious or secular. These people are called Big Cheeses or King Henrys. They should practice what they preach, and according to George, they do not. Take teachers, he said. In every class when I was at school, there was always a little kid who was scruffy and smelly, and the punishment was always to sit next to the smelly kid. Fancy a teacher doing that. It is useless to reason with George on these issues. His mind is made up. His independence seems to have rooted itself at an early age. 
In the old Liverpool days, he would stand at the bus stop wearing his black leather suit, white cowboy boots, and a very pale pink peaked cap. He would be the only person at the bus stop so dressed. When the bus arrived, he would board it with guitar amplifier and offer a T-chest bass. Personal embarrassment is something he rarely suffers from. And to go on to religion, George said, he was born in the Catholic faith. I think religion falls flat on its face. All this love thy neighbor, but none of them are doing it. How can anybody get themselves into the position of being Pope and accept all the glory and money and the Mercedes Benz and that? I could never be Pope until I'd sold my rich gates and my posh hat. I couldn't sit there with all that money on me and believe I was religious. Why can't we bring all this out in the open? Why is there all this stuff about blasphemy? If Christianity is as good as they say it is, it should stand up to a bit of discussion. He takes a Wordsworthian view of the evils of urban society and the influences of mass media. Babies, when they are born, George said, are pure. Gradually, they get more impure with all the rubbish being pumped into them by society and television and that, till gradually they're dying off all of everything. <laughs> it was a distressing thought. George, who had concerned himself with this interview so far, grew anxious about the ending. I don't want my article to end up sad, he said. Me in nowhere land, making all my nothing plans for nobody. I don't want the angry young man against the world sort of ending. I'll tell you what I think. The main thing is to have a good time and to do the best you can. Okay, we're the famous Beatles. So what? There are other things apart from being famous Beatles. It's not the living end, is it? On the other hand, I feel I've seen twice as much of life as most people do when they peg out. I'm very pleased that I'm me. Because after all, I could have been somebody else, couldn't I? Somehow, one can always see what George is driving at. Finn. <laughs> If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.